<laughs> okay, uh, that episode is done, but I wanted to ask you, I wrote this book, Humbug, a couple years ago. Right, yeah, yeah. This yeah. audio book. Yep. I wondered if you would be cool if I were to use this channel to release that audio sure. book. Uh, Absolutely. Just like this weekend, I'd stick it up sure. there. Sure. Didn't you do that last year? I didn't put it on the Show Show account. Oh, okay. I put it up on YouTube. It hasn't been on iTunes for free download in a couple of years. Oh, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so it just, just uh, to give I it... I thought you were going to ask me to be a voice on it. No, it's done. It's made. Uh, I would have done it. You're a professional voice artist now. And I can't, I said, can't, I can't pay you. Yeah, yeah, okay. In 1843, Charles Dickens writes this little book in six weeks called A Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. uh, which goes on to become one of the most popular novels of all time. It sort of defined like our modern illustration of what Christmas is and what it means. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this like modern retelling of it a couple years ago uh, in which you see it through the eyes of Bob Cratchit instead. That's kind of comical and silly. And I voiced an audiobook for it. I produced it. And so uh, that'll be that'll be coming up next. It's a fun listen. Thanks very much. Bye. Merry Christmas. <laughs> this is the story of Humbug. In prose, being Charles Dickens' classic ghost story of Christmas, seen through different eyes. A novella by Colin Sweets. With respect to the original characters, arc, and framework, of the beloved A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. For my mother, father, and brother, without whom there would be no understanding of the importance of family from which to draw. Preface I have endeavored in these reels to propose the spirit of an idea which should, if not vindicate a literary icon, at the very least, humanize him. I do not intend to alienate creators before me with a genius that reached far beyond my wildest dreams by disputing their findings of instances to have been wonderful. I only aim to highlight, for you listeners, a perspective from Christmas present rather than past, and pray that it brings you as much amusement as it has brought me. Your faithful friend and servant, C.S. December 2015 Dave 1 It is not my place to discuss the settings of Christmas past, present, or yet to come upon lands which I have never slept, though I, like most, have dreamed of many a magical land within which my version of Christmas could be celebrated. I've spent every single one of my so far 24 Christmases in the same city, that is the city of Halifax, a harbor town in eastern Canada with countless Christmas pasts, each one admittedly celebrated with a mild increase of melancholy over the one previous to it. This is, of course, the dark magic that moves within Christmas, the wondrously upheld illusion that Christmas can continue to be the way that it was. Unfortunately, though, through my 50-plus journeys between Sunday and Sunday since last Christmas, I've determined, in addition to the sad truth, that the memories that keep our Christmas spirit alive are now unobtainable. Indeed, those memories are very likely of moments that never truly happened at all. Alas, it is very likely that magic, that spirit, is manufactured. Then again, perhaps a little illusion for the sake of a warm feeling and a moment of kindness isn't such a crime. It has been, after all, a high priority during Halifax's holiday season to recapture that elusive sensation. By process, they line Barrington Street with special lights and wreaths big enough to be the crowns for yuletide giants. In Parade Square, a tree is erected beneath which beer bottles are collected from locals proud to carry on the Christmas spirit of a certain legendary Halifax brewmaster and that tree twinkles against City Hall until after the start of the new year. 
Crowds form outside local theaters, and spare change is gifted more fluidly at the end of seasonal shows, and restaurants are lit with candles behind foggy windows that contrast the brisk with the cozy. My city during this wonderful time of year could only be described as Dickensian. But if Christmas is meant to remind us of how we once possibly felt, it stands to reason that some of us would not be so fortunate as to have warm feelings to call upon— Unfortunately, some folks have only frigid memories of Christmas that continue to inform their seasonal spirit today. Ebenezer Scrooge was one such person, but this is not directly his story. What follows is the telling of one particular eve, when Bob Cratchit used trickery, deceit, trespassing, and frankly extortion to bequeath unto a miserable, covetous, and nasty miser the true meaning of Christmas. This was, of course, accidental, as Bob had his own reasons for operating such a scheme reasons which served a purpose vaguely less altruistic. Nevertheless, his motives began like this. The 23rd of December was traditionally the busiest day for business at Scrooge and Marley Brokerage, a large operation of chartered accountants. While similar office floors gridded with hundreds of cubicles often decorated for the holidays, Scrooge and Marley looked the same as it did year-round, apart from the heightened energy of chaos that plagued the workspace. It is, after all, during the Christmas season when most people tend to realize that they, their families, or their businesses have grossly overspent and are in dire need of some financial advisement. This particular December 23rd was like all the others in that way. The photocopier was perpetually out of paper. The supply closet key was often missing. The meetings with clients were being wedged aside to make room for others. And Bob Cratchit sat pleading over his telephone. Well, Marley's dead to begin with. That's why you can't speak with him. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. And Mr. Scrooge signed it himself, Bob explained. And I only know this because I personally processed Mr. Marley's will myself. There's a subtle art, perfected by few, of rationalizing with the irrational. Bob had spent nine years at the firm cultivating his patience for people like the man on the phone, who insisted on speaking with Jacob Marley, the partner who opened his account years before. It was not unreasonable for Bob to decline the gentleman's request. It simply was so. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Bob knew this, of course, because he had processed the will. It would have been illegal for Scrooge to do it himself, being the sole heir. All other judgments were made by him anyway, though there were very few. Perhaps it would have been easier to rename the firm post-Marley's passing. Perhaps that would have made Bob's phone call a bit briefer. It had been a much-publicized event, the death of Jacob Marley. He and Scrooge had been partners in success and in failure for decades before I'd even been born. They were counters. They counted things. To count two of them together was to count 14 vehicles, five homes, three office buildings, four engagements, three marriages, three divorces, amazingly two turtle doves, and zero children. They were good at counting, especially the dollars earned from doing another's counting for him. Their dollars were many. Their successes were many. Their assets were many. But their partnership remained ever only two until the Christmas Eve seven years prior when Jacob Marley landed on the floor and stayed there. It was quite a shame. At the risk of being crass, had Scrooge been the first to die, Marley might have gone on running the business flippantly and driven it into the ground. Or he might have sold the business and run off to the Caribbean in search of a fourth wife, a joyful ending as well. But that hadn't been the case. Instead, Scrooge and Marley had become half a lie, and the other half far less cordial. To say Scrooge was unpleasant was to say Pip had only modest expectations, or that Oliver had been parentally handicapped. He was bloody miserable. 
Bob Cratchit, on the other hand, delighted in sharing good spirits. He was not the kind to beat his chest. Instead, he worked at a respectable pace and chose to keep out of the way. As a young man, he'd been registered as an accountant and came to Scrooge and Marley sometime later in hopes of climbing the corporate ladder. In that time, it seemed to have become much more plausible that Scrooge may never die and that the firm's structure could stay that way forever. Bob wasn't paid particularly well and did have four children to care for, Arthur, Simon, Belinda, and Timothy. It was a tradition in the Cratchit home for Bob to perform a magic trick each evening after dinner. He would then teach his children and wife Emily how the trick was done. I feel it necessary to remind you, there is no such thing as magic. No trick is without a logical explanation. Well, may I speak with Mr. Scrooge? The man on the phone asked Bob. No, I'm afraid that won't be possible either, Bob explained, knowing that it wasn't worth checking first. Mr. Scrooge is unavailable this afternoon. In fact, I'm not sure he's even in the building. Bob did know that Scrooge, in fact, was in the building. The old man's shadow could be seen all day on the white shear that hung over the window to Scrooge's office. He scarcely ever emerged, and all that most account managers knew of him were his gaunt posture and spindly fingers elongated by the shadow that impatiently tapped on the pane when Scrooge got up to stretch his legs. All that in his disturbingly blunt emails. The latest one was written as follows. To all staff. Re, 24th. New business in Dooley account. Due tomorrow, midnight. No one leaves for Xmas until complete. E.S. That was simply a tone Bob and his associates had grown accustomed to, It rarely felt personal anyway. If someone behaves a certain way towards everybody, one should not be so arrogant as to assume accountability for that behavior, and certainly no associates ever did. It was especially easy to feel spiteful towards Scrooge in an instance where he so brazenly threatened to spoil Christmas for upwards of 200 people. Mr. Applegate, I'd be happy to assist you in any way I can now, Bob insisted. Well, clearly not, the man shouted back and hung up the phone. This was perfectly common as well. Long gone were the days when Bob would panic in these moments and seek the nearest way to reconcile a matter. He was just another fool. Enter yet another. Knock, knock! A waspy man crouched in the entryway of Bob's cubicle as if to be hiding from someone. Hey, stranger. Hi, Fred, Bob sighed, hanging up the phone. Merry Christmas, old friend, Fred bellowed, standing upright and taking the greeting as an invitation to enter further. He carried with him a wreath. It was no bigger than a basketball in diameter and woven sloppily of real evergreen, dripping needles on the floor. Oh, and you, Fred, Bob smiled. He was a darling man who gleaned an incomparable ray of joy year-round. If ever there was a day when Fred could bear the cheerfulness no more, Bob had not yet heard of it, and though it often felt inflamed with poor timing, he admired Fred's ability to be that way. What have you there? A gift, Fred shouted, raising the wreath into the air. A gift for my dear uncle. Indeed, the office could have greatly benefited from some holiday sprucing, as it were. A wreath even so small could have livened a single cubicle in such a way that the atmosphere of the whole floor might have tasted more candied. Fred's uncle did not work in a cubicle, though, but rather an office with a window and a white shear. Fred was Fred Hollywell, son of Fan. Though long dead now, it was perhaps an even greater misfortune of Fred's mother that, while alive, she'd been the sister of one Ebenezer Scrooge, God rest her soul. Genial Fred Hollywell was an ironic sensation, and Scrooge's only living relative. How nice. Would you like me to leave it for him? Bob asked. No need. I want to invite him for Christmas dinner anyway. I'll run it on up. Well, good luck, Bob said.
with a tone of unfaithful sarcasm. Fred's grin halved, and his head tilted to indicate confusion. Ugh, I'm sorry, Fred, Bob corrected. I do not wish to pass judgment, but you know how he is, especially around Christmas. I think it's just Marley, Fred explained sweetly. Gone seven years tomorrow, don't you know? Bob forced a look of surprise. And if old Jake were here, he'd tell Uncle Lebby to lighten up, buttercup. Bob laughed sincerely. That was good, Fred. The voice was perfect. Well, thank you. Even my old uncle used to get a kick out of that one. And you know, Bob, it might just do him some good to come back to the old house for some jolly tradition. Well, particularly today, it would seem his Christmas spirit is even more absent than usual. Look at the note he just sent. Fred leaned over Bob to scan the email. My, my, that does seem a bit frosty. Forgive me again, Fred, but surely you're aware that's the very trait people claim informs his peculiar love of the cold air. Fred squinted at Bob. He can be such a cold man. Bah! Fred yelped. My point exactly, Bob. A man has his preferences. One cannot possibly be as much of a monster as the poor souls made out to be. Perhaps not, Bob conceded. Before Fred had the opportunity to then jest that Bob, in fact, had seemed to be the one lacking in festiveness, the phone awoke again. Saved by the bell, Bob raised his index finger at Fred and lifted the receiver with his other hand. Good afternoon, SMB. Bob Cratchit speaking. Do you have a home address, Cratchit? The voice inquired, sweetly curious. Bob immediately sat up straight and turned away from Fred as if the voice had already conditioned him to do so. Yes, Mr. Scrooge. 48 Doughty Street, North? Indeed. And then a pause. A familiar pause, known never to be a good sign. Why then might you have a Christmas wreath messengered to your place of business? To my place of business, where surely there's business to be done? The sheath of patience that masked Scrooge's frustration was as frail as the old man's back. Oh, no, sir. Actually, I didn't even order the wreath, Bob relaxed a little. It's Fred. He's brought it for you. Realizing who Bob was speaking with, Fred beamed, turned towards Scrooge's window, and waved, as if to be signaling a rescue helicopter from a desert island. I bloody well know who he is, the sheath crumbled. He's my blasted nephew. How did he get past reception? I don't know, sir. Should I tell him now's not a good time? Bob asked. Scrooge's response didn't come through the receiver of Bob's telephone. Instead, an entire row of cubicles were disturbed by the creak of a sash being flung open from Scrooge's office window, and Scrooge himself leaning out to yell, He should know by the date on his calendar now's not a good time. Some fifty people, including Bob and Fred, turned in fear. My nephew should know I never consider it a good time for any self-respecting full-grown man to be wasting his precious breath on something as childish as Christmas. His sinister whisper flooded the room. And Cratchit, you should know it's not a good time either for foolish questions, not while the clock ticks you closer and closer to certain deadlines. And you should know that you don't want to know what happens if those deadlines aren't met. Is that clear? All that's clear you curmudgeonly old crackpot, is the rancid drool on your chin. Bob Cratchit obviously didn't say. Instead, it was, yes, Mr. Scrooge. He cowered like a well-trained dog after a scolding. In spite of Fred's optimism, he was wrong. Scrooge was cold. That is, of course, figuratively speaking, though actually Scrooge's having opened the window to his office, which he kept tempered at a brisk 17 degrees, allowed a nasty draft to drape over his entire staff. 
It was never a more poignant metaphor. He embodied the winter himself, never flashy but lurid in a way that could not be missed by his crooked posture, sinister gaze, and wiry spectacles on the tip of his nose. Now I don't know, Scrooge continued, in a return to his condescending snarl. Should I tell the fool to take his twigs and his nonsense back to the street? Should I tell him to keep Christmas in his own way, so I can keep it in mine? Or do you suppose that's an idiotic question and entirely unnecessary, Mr. Cratchit? No, sir, Bob said, succumbing to his embarrassment. I'll see him out. And with that, the sash was returned to its sill, and the echo of reverberating glass was all that could be heard. A moment later, Scrooge could be seen pulling his shear back over the inside of the window, and only then did order begin to restore. This included Bob's impatience with Fred. As he leaned back in his chair to take his first full breath in minutes, he glared at the ever-grinning aforementioned fool. No need, old friend, Fred said with a hint of apology. I know the way. Perhaps calling ahead would have been a clever idea. Bob sternly whispered, Perhaps and turned back to his desk, hanging up the receiver, which then had started to emit a ghostly dial tone. Though offering of plenty true merriment, evenings spent between loving friends, eating hams and pies, faithful friends who are dear to us, gathering near to us, and the rest of that charming sentiment, Christmas is not without some dishonesty in its projection. For example, it's scarcely ever a white Christmas in Halifax, where I live, and though I dream of them year after year, as the song says... White Christmases aren't necessarily the ones that I used to know. On the evening of December 23rd, seven years after the death of Jacob Marley, Bob Cratchit's city was not white for Christmas either. Instead, heavy rain poured down the windows of the crowded bus where he stood. It was nearly all the way dark, and though Bob never minded the rain, its bold partnership with the dusk felt like sarcastic symbolism for his workday in general. Water washed over the bus as melancholy washed over him, in place of any joy the time of year is said to bring. If there was any flicker of Christmas within Bob Cratchit, it was fueled by the faint sounds of James Taylor singing Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas over the vehicle's raspy sound system. May your heart be light. Bob thought about how nice it was that whatever radio station they were listening to hadn't sworn off Christmas music for fear of alienating the one person who might have had the time to bother with concern. Bob was not a spiritual man, but he did believe the rampant political correctness of Christmas had become obnoxious and cowardly. He also distinctly appreciated that it was James Taylor and not Mariah Carey. Bob wore a rain-soaked overcoat and wedged between his feet a shoulder bag overflowing with paperwork. His gloves were stuffed in his pockets so he could feel the 52 playing cards between his fingers. He shuffled them casually, not in presentation but as a way of soothing his mind, though he did command tremendous control of the deck. He flicked the cards, smacked them, and fanned them into a perfect circle. From opposite Bob, only a circle of red card backs could be seen resembling a bulb from a Christmas tree. He then subtly began rubbing the face side of the fan with his middle finger, and the ace of spades began to mystically rise from above the others, as if something otherworldly was drawing it. How, I couldn't say. He concentrated as the card moved slowly, but was disturbed when the bus hit a pothole and jerked his whole body forward, forcing him to grab a pole and steady himself. Fifty-two playing cards flew out like doves and landed on hats, in laps, 
and in puddles on the floor. Naturally, laughter ensued. A merry little Christmas indeed, Bob thought as he sighed and ran the palm of his other hand down his face. I'm sorry, everyone, he said softly and went to work collecting the spoiled deck. When the bus arrived at Bob's home, he was the only one to get off. The rain had gotten heavier at just that moment, but could phase him no further. His bag then wedged in his armpit, he carried clumps of spoiled playing cards in his fists and jogged steadily toward the stoop. The home was one of many narrow splits lined and attached like books on a shelf. The neighborhood was scarred by the unfortunate presence of a haunting and overgrown cemetery on its edge. There was buried the long line of ancestry for any family which resided in the county for more than five decades. Bob first met Fred Hollywell, not at the office, but at that very cemetery on a Christmas day while the two were visiting their respective mothers at nearby grave sites. The Cratchit house was illuminated by a proud red spotlight, and a feeble strand of crumbled faux garland was strung around the rail that led to the door where leaned a familiar Christmas wreath and a piece of yellow notepaper. Bob lifted both as he ducked out of the rain. Perhaps a more suitable home. Merry Christmas, Cratchits. From F.H. In moments like these, Fred Hollywell's unwavering kindness never failed to win Bob back. He smiled earnestly and used his barely free hand to jerk open the door, which instantly welcomed him with the smell of Emily's brown sugar yams. Hello, he hollered toward the light shining from the kitchen. Hi, Pop, one of the children shouted back. Emily leaned into the doorframe wearing oven mitts. Hi, sweetie. Bob kicked off his boots and left them in a gravelly puddle and a clump of others. Still clutching more things than he had hands, he made his way into the comfort he'd missed especially all afternoon long. The kitchen of the Cratchit home was likely not dissimilar from one you know from your childhood. It was always busy and untidy, clad with stacks of undisposed-of flyers and a chair which served as the dumping zone of several Jansport backpacks. His youngest children, his twins, Simon and Belinda, poured over a large puzzle on the kitchen table, and Emily was in front of the stove wiping the condensation from her glasses onto the tail of her shirt. "'Hi, Daddy,' Belinda said, without breaking her concentration. "'It's kids skating,' Simon shouted, pointing at the table." You know, the front of the box could have told you that, Bob kidded. Yeah, but that's too easy, Simon said, facing back down. Bob chuckled and stepped on the pedal of the garbage can where he dumped 52 crumpled and damped playing cards. He placed Fred's wreath on the corner of the counter and was met with Emily's hands on his face. She kissed him and said, You're soggy. The least of my woes this evening, love, he sighed, closing his eyes and propping his drippy head against hers. Emily pushed it back off, grabbed a tea towel, and tossed it to him. What's wrong? Standard December 23rd at Scrooge and Marley, he said, wiping his face. And the old man seems even less human than usual, you know. A human, though, he certainly is, Bob. The holidays are very difficult for some people. You have to remember this. It had long ago become a part of the evening routine that Emily Cratchit would patiently console her husband after a stressful day. In the mere three times she'd had the opportunity to meet Ebenezer Scrooge, He'd spoken to her only once, and had asked her to move aside, please, in such a way that didn't sound so much as though he necessarily meant the please part. Still, she found an appropriate way of supporting Bob's frustrations, all the while giving Scrooge the benefit of the doubt. After all, it was only ever the people who'd met Scrooge very few times who could think of him that way. For Bob, thoughts of him as inhuman were no longer terribly hyperbolic. He's got my division on a new case tomorrow. Also due tomorrow, it's very unlikely I'll make mass, Bob said apologetically. 
Though a lover of Christmas and its traditions, Bob was never one to allow Christ's imposition on his, at least not beyond Christmas Eve's midnight mass at St. Catherine's. It was the ritual more than the spirituality that charmed him. Oh, and I'm sure that's got you all broken up, Emily joked. Well, I do regret it, in fact, Bob said sincerely. I've had a hard time capturing that Christmas spirit they talk about in the television commercials and the storefront windows. This year, anyway. The aroma of yams was whisked toward the front door once again when it swung open and presented the top of a beefy noble fur working its way inside. Then maybe, darling, this will help your spirits. Emily winked at Bob and headed towards the fur. Bob watched suspiciously, unable to see the rain beyond the fur, far less whoever was touting it. At the door frame, Emily grabbed the trunk of the tree with her oven mitts and spoke loudly through the bushel. You're doing this backwards. Yes, I see the fault now in my judgment. Thank you, a voice hollered from the other end. It was a voice Bob knew well. What's going on? he asked enthusiastically. Help us, and I suppose you'll find out, Emily said, turning to jerk the tree through the door from behind her. Bob approached and peeled the stuck branches through the frame, freeing a space and revealing to him the anguished and wet face of his eldest son, his twenty-year-old, Arthur. He was stocky and tall and sporting his first respectable beard, which was ripe with the red hair he'd gotten from Emily's mother. Hey, Pop, Merry Christmas, Arthur said, forcing himself against the tree and finally birthing it through the frame. Emily, startled by its push, let go of the trunk and watched as it flopped to the floor. Rainwater splashed onto the boards and needles softened into the air like a cloud of smoke left behind by the roadrunner. Each of the men, as wet as the other, embraced as Emily removed her oven mitt and wiped her hands on her jeans. "'What are you doing here?' Bob asked his son, incredulous. "'Well, I couldn't actually miss Christmas at home,' Arthur said. "'That would be a bit too much like missing it altogether.' "'He got in this morning, surprised us all,' Emily said, returning to the kitchen to fetch towels for the wet floor. "'Well, this is a fine surprise,' Bob sighed. "'It had been a greater gloom than any other,' that he had expected his eldest son would stay in England for Christmas that year. Arthur had called home the month before to report that he had not saved enough money through the semester to make it home for the holidays. Bob had not made his commission quota, and Christmas was always so expensive as it was. It broke his heart that he might not have his whole family home for Christmas, but also that there was nothing he could fiscally do about it. Bob and Arthur each took an end of the tree and carried it, this time back end first, through the doorway of the Cratchit living room. There sat two hypnotized 15-year-olds, a boy and a girl, resting against one another on the couch. The boy was Bob's second son, Tim, who wore a Superman t-shirt and fleece pajama bottoms over a large cast on his right leg. He was lanky and long, and uninhibitedly fixated on a TLC docuseries about experts of the supernatural entering people's homes and claiming that ghosts lived there. The girl resting against him was Kate, girlfriend. She clutched Tim's hand and rested her chin on his shoulder. "'Little help, Tim,' Arthur asked his brother. "'Can't,' Tim said, without even averting his eyes from the television. "'Bum ankle, you know.' He was referring to the cast and the basketball injury that had inspired it. Tim had started high school in the fall and started quickly on the basketball team as the youngest point guard his school had had in recent history. His incessant need to prove himself as worthy in spite of his age— resembled a mild arrogance and plagued him with an unlikeliness to pass the ball. That was the very issue that caused trouble for Tim a week before when he attempted a layup while decidedly unopen and collapsed down on the shoulders of a six-foot-four senior from the opposing school and shattered his right kneecap. 
Kate had seen it as her duty to nurse him in a Nightingalian way. She was a sweet girl who fit in with the Cratchit family nicely. She would often join for dinner and help Emily in the kitchen while Tim would play video games. The other Cratchits admired her willingness to tell him to thank your mother and set the table. Since Tim's injury and dismissal from school, Kate had been around more than ever and had worked up a habit of waiting on his hand and certainly foot. Looks beautiful, Arthur, Kate said as the two men hoisted the tree into the corner of the room. Arthur exhaled and smiled instead of thanking her. Hi, Bob, she then said. Hi, dear. How's the patient? The patient's doing better. Though he is experiencing an acute burning ear syndrome, Tim muttered, still not looking away from the television. Kate winked at Bob and whispered, Nothing a little Christmas spirit can't fix. What are you watching, Bob said. Spirit watch, she answered, uncertainly, facing down at Tim. He nodded slowly. Spirit watch, she said again. We've watched like five of them now. This crazy old man says his dead brother's ghost is in his house, so these guys are going in to see if they can get rid of it. I sort of think they're just ripping him off. She paused. Yeah, they're definitely ripping him off. Bob looked at the TV for a moment and then to the doorway where Emily had leaned in. Dinner's ready. Make sure a towel goes under that tree. Emily Cratchit's brown sugar yams were the main event. The slices of perfectly decent honey ham sat on the edge of them like a garnish and were always scarfed down first so the yam flavor could hold residence for longer. In the center of the table, Emily had laid Fred Hollywell's wreath with a candle in the middle. All seven of them had expanded themselves outward of the table to make room for what they felt like were expanded stomachs. The plates looked nearly as though they'd already been through the wash. Nice of Fred to leave that, Emily said of the wreath. I'm surprised he didn't come inside. Not necessarily disappointed, but absolutely surprised. Oh, Fred can be intense, Bob began. But it would be the least we could do to have him over for a nog tomorrow evening. His Christmases must be so quiet, especially since his mother passed, and never a word of malcontent from the fella. Is Fred not spending Christmas Eve with Mr. Scrooge? Simon asked. I don't imagine so, buddy, though I can't imagine anybody would want to anyway. Bob turned to face Emily. Hopefully I won't have to for too long either. Christmas Eve doesn't start without you, she said as she stood and kissed him on the cheek as she began to collect the plates. As if to imitate, Kate kissed Tim's cheek and then rose to gather the others. How about a trick, Pop? Arthur asked. Before Bob could react, Simon and Belinda both cheered in affirmation. Emily placed plates into the sink and retrieved a fresh deck of cards from a kitchen drawer and tossed them to her husband. Okay, okay, let's see what we have here, he said, spilling the cards into his hands and shuffling them casually. He looked up at his audience, his four children together for the first time in months, treated by the attention of their wonder. Even Tim, who'd been behaving especially like a 15-year-old, watched on in anticipation. Bob's shuffling stalled, and he thought a moment before slyly whispering, the Christmas bulb. His twins both clapped. Now, Kate, dear, think of a card, any card. Don't tell me what it is. From behind the counter, Kate paused. Okay, she said finally. Now, whisper it to Emily, Bob directed. Kate obliged, and he continued by placing his deck face down on the table. Now, all of my children, each of you take a card from anywhere in the deck and hold on to it. Don't show it to anyone. And Simon and Belinda and Arthur and Tim each took turns reaching for the deck, picking through and selecting a card for themselves. Everybody good? Bob asked. Okay, now Kate, pick one of my children and shout his or her name at the top of your lungs. Belinda, Kate shouted, 
excitedly entertained by the showmanship. Okay, Belinda, I need you to slip your card back into the deck and don't show it to me. Bob then put the cards on the table and covered his eyes with his hands. Belinda cut the deck and placed her card within. Okay, Belinda shouted, also enthralled. Bob uncovered his eyes and picked up the deck once again. He began to shuffle. Now I should have 49 cards in this deck, he said. Let's find Belinda's. He flicked the cards, smacked them, and fanned them into a perfect circle, just as he'd done on the bus. He rubbed the face side of the fan with his middle finger, and a single card began to mystically rise above the others. How, I could not say. Whoa, Arthur yelped. The twins clapped again, and Tim continued to gaze. Belinda, Bob said softly, take this card. She reached across the table and drew it from the Christmas tree bulb of cards and looked down, amazed. Is that your card? Bob asked his daughter. She looked back up at him, lit up like the sun, and slowly nodded. Simon began to clap again, but Bob stopped him. Wait, we're not done. Emily? He turned to face her, watching from behind the counter. What was Kate's card? Emily hesitated. Four of diamonds, she said. Belinda, show everyone your card. And Belinda flipped her card around to reveal the four of diamonds. Arthur began to laugh, and the rest of the kitchen exploded in applause. This was what Bob loved the most about his evening tradition. The entire family was delighted to not only indulge him, but also make it a total spectacle. With his family in full assembly and joy in his kitchen, Bob Cratchit, for the first time that year, felt Christmas spirit slipping into the air. The evening grew tired, wound to a peaceful crawl, and the Cratchits took turns submitting to the end of the long day. The twins went upstairs first, followed by Emily. Kate rose from her seat in the living room where the family had adjourned and announced that she needed to be getting home. She kissed Tim, who sat with his bad leg on the coffee table, bid them goodbye until tomorrow, and saw herself out. Moments later, Tim mustered the snuff to rise also and hobbled up the stairs in rejection of his father's offer to help. And then... There remained only Bob and his early gift. His eldest son's return home, a muted television still playing a marathon of episodes of Spirit Watch, and of course, their charming noble fur. Bob thought through the catch-up about how he'd been a fairly soft father. As a younger man, he'd often fallen fool to his temper and vowed when Arthur was born to be ever gentle, even if that meant his authority would be compromised. That said, He had plenty more appropriate sensibilities as a father of his nature than he had assumed. Arthur had grown up strong and smart and with a goodness in his eyes that matched his soul. Bob's greatest trial of that vow happened upon Arthur's announcement two years previous that he'd been accepted into the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. Against Bob's personal experience as a practitioner of rational career goals, he had very little understanding why his son would take such a risk. It was a move so foreign to Bob that it hadn't even occurred to him that Arthur had been talking for his entire childhood about how badly he wanted to be an actor one day. But one could not deny the prestige of that institution, and it became his role to support that of Arthur's adventures and any other that may be presented. Perhaps also, Bob asked himself what his life might have been like had he chosen to perform for a living. He delighted so in inventing new illusions and finding fun ways of sharing them, It gave him a sensation of unmitigated happiness. Once in a blue moon, a person is lucky enough to make a life out of pursuing that feeling. If his beloved son Arthur could have that in his life, nothing would please Bob more. So how is everything? Bob asked. 
Everything, Arthur repeated. Yeah, everything. School, but not only school. How are your friends? How's your apartment? How's London? How's the Queen? Arthur laughed. Funny, her majesty was just asking me about you. He reached for his mug. Bob and Arthur both drank herbal tea with a shot of Jameson. It was when each of them loosened to a new level that Emily had chosen to head to bed and give them a while alone. Everything's amazing, Pop, he answered, smiling. I'm an assistant teacher for a freshman course in blocking, and that has me getting extra credit, and I barely ever hear from my roommate, so that's the dream. Bob sipped his tea and beamed at Arthur without saying anything. He was proud. The only fear he still held of the future for his son was whether or not his visits would ever be, at the very least, regular. After another pause, Arthur asked, How about you, Pop? How are you doing? There was a hint of knowing in his voice, a tone of empathy. Well, kid, if you'd asked me that a few hours ago, I might have had my grievances, Bob said. But I'm not seeing much past how great it is to have you home. Well, Mom says old Scrooge is on your case, Arthur insisted. No more than everybody else. But, sir, he's, he's not the easiest man. Let's just say if Scrooge were one to accept Christmas cards, he'd be as unlikely to receive one from me as he would anybody else. He's pitiful, Arthur scorned. Well, I don't know about that, Arthur. No, he is, man, he is. What reason could he have for being so morose? You'd hope a man could be rich enough that he'd not need to make worse the lives of less fortunate people around him. Arthur, I would hardly call us less fortunate, Bob reasoned. Look at all we have. Pop, near the entirety of the world is less fortunate than Ebenezer Scrooge, and still we all manage to look kindly upon one another, at least during Christmas. But he's got you all bogged down tomorrow, hasn't he? That's what Mum said. The old miser is setting out to spoil for others what he can't enjoy himself. Arthur quickly became exasperated. He'd only ever known his father as an endlessly patient man, and though that trait was often seen as a cause to respect Bob Cratchit, it frustrated his family to see Scrooge take advantage of him and not have any means to fix it. He's been awful to you for years, and it's not just wrong objectively. I also hoped we could spend Christmas Eve together, Dad. But we can't if you're stuck under fluorescent lights way uptown. The passive aggression was the result of one part disappointment and two parts whiskey. It cut Bob deeply to know that his son saw the wickedness from afar, that he'd been disappointed. As he lowered his head silently and sipped his tea, Arthur worried he had overstepped. You're right. He's awful, Bob said softly. He's an arrogant, power-hungry, skin-flinting bully. With each word, he spoke more loudly, as if each word better fueled his fury. He's an egomaniacal, loutish has-been, and he is far too old to be the brat that he is. Yes, Arthur sat upright. Pop, I'm telling you, you can't make excuses for Scrooge. He treats good people like dirt. He does. And what kind of name is Ebenezer anyhow? Bob sat upright also and pointed at his son, both of them suddenly full of energy. Scrooge is practically a dictator, and he's gotten away with it for years, and shame on me for letting it be that way. No, it's not your fault, Pop. Well, be that as it may, a man has a responsibility to stick up for himself and for his peers, and if it's not done comfortably, that's no excuse for not taking a stand. Bob was speaking from the back of his throat. But what can you do? Arthur asked earnestly. Bob paused. He'd very quickly been swept up in the excitement of his admissions and forgot to take his proper number of breaths. As they came to him, he relaxed again in his chair and took another sip of tea. 
The Cratchit living room was more silent then than it had been since Bob arrived home for the evening. The rain had let up, but still beaded down from the bay window, which framed an intensely foggy, dowdy street. The sky was clear and boasted its best edition of the moon, but around the cars and low-lying foliage of the Cratchit's neighborhood was a thick mystic. Only the foreheads of the most grandiose tombstones could be seen in the cemetery. Bob gazed out the window for a moment while his son said nothing, but was quickly drawn away by a sudden movement on the television. In his then peripheral was a deck of cards, which seduced him as always from the coffee table, and the muted images of two bookish-looking men carrying lanterns and making their way up a dark and cobwebbed winding staircase. Arthur sipped his tea and wondered if he had pushed his father to a state of emotion far less accessed by accountants than by actors, and he wondered also if that had been reckless of him. You okay, Pop? Yeah, Bob said quickly. I was just thinking. Thinking about what? Arthur chuckled a little to bring ease to the moment. Just thinking about uh, nothing. Bob then shook his head, breaking his own trance, and looked back to Arthur. Nothing. Nothing at all. It was, as you might imagine, not nothing which had come over Bob. It was, as you might imagine, an idea. The rare kind of idea that assembles itself in full in a matter of seconds and leaves a person under the curious influence of its suggestion. As is the case with such ideas, though, this particular idea was not necessarily the kind from which all associated parties will benefit. Though not a selfish person by any means, it occurred to Bob during the brief visitation of that idea that the ways from which he could benefit from its outcome were tantalizing indeed. It was, as you might imagine, ill-advised, dangerous, and cruel. Certainly, some of mankind's more clever ideas throughout history could have been initially described that very same way. That was the logic Bob considered as he sipped back the final gulp of whiskey-laced tea. The cheeky thing about such whimsical ideas is that whether pursued or not, once had, they're with a person to stay. It is, as you might imagine, exactly what this story is about. Nothing, Bob thought again to himself. Nothing at all. Stave 2 For many who dream of Christmas's promise, the day before brings nearly the same level of anticipation, and as such, even more joy. Of my 24 Christmas Eves, I have fond memories of not being in school, and instead in the living room where my mother had left on a string of daytime talk shows, while she had us balance some of the gifts beneath our tree. Our family Christmas tree, by the way, has always been an aristocrat of Christmas trees, not unfamiliar for how trees are to look in the lobbies of high-end hotels. My brother and I each had our own miniature trees to provide a thing for each of us to decorate without fear of spoiling my mother's perfect one. When a selection of wrapped gifts designated for my grandmother or my aunt were gathered into a laundry basket, they were loaded into the back of my father's truck, and we would all make our way across one of Halifax's iconic bridges— and that other family for what would usually be my only visit to church all year long. Afterward, it was tradition that we play Pictionary or some other party game until it was time to go to bed. These customs have carried comfortably into my young adulthood, and it is a treat to be able to count on their return each year. For Bob Cratchit, Christmas Eves which fell on weekdays had long been uniform to one another as well, and in fact largely indifferent to most days between Monday and Friday. He'd wake at 6 a.m. next to his beautiful wife, slither out of bed so as not to wake her, and make his way to the bathroom, behind closed eyes and knowing the route from memory. He would shower, shave, brush his teeth all at the same time, put on khakis and one of two sport coats, 
and head out the door, a leather shoulder bag and banana in tow. On the seventh anniversary of Jacob Marley's death, Bob's morning routine began unblemished. At the time he closed his front door and trotted toward his corner, which a city bus was fast approaching, neither the sun nor the previous evening's fog had lifted. For that matter, neither really had Bob's eyelids. It was perfectly manageable that he go through these motions in a state of autopilot. His bus offered the rare chance to sit. He realized quickly that it being Christmas Eve, fewer people went to work, at least so early. And for the same reason, traffic was lighter. Bob noted, the ride to Scrooge and Marley Brokerage, which typically took 30 minutes, took only 17, and when he arrived at his final destination, wagered the time to stop by Oliver's for coffee. Bob's head ached mildly, and he failed to yet shake off the lethargy of his rest and worried a bit that he shouldn't have stayed up with Arthur drinking whiskey. Too large, please, he said to the barista. Whenever Bob stopped for coffee anywhere, even if alone, he made the habit of buying two just in case he should run into someone he could offer the other two. If nothing else, he could leave it in his office's lunchroom and instate a dibs opportunity. The barista returned to him with two cups of black coffee and a pair of candy canes. Merry Christmas, she said, smiling. Bob smiled back and collected his things. Stepping away from a busy city street on Christmas Eve and into the Scrooge and Marley offices was like stepping out of one story and into another. Bob, who had been charmed by the candy canes in the wake of the day's bustle, felt immediately regular as his feet landed down on the cold tile. Activity was, as always, and though early, the staff was in nearly full assembly and motoring between cubicles and the photocopier, tying loose ends instead of bows. Before turning down the hall from where the racket all came, Bob approached the reception desk where sat Margaret, who was communing with two suited fellows. From behind, they were quintessential, one tall and one short, one lean and one stout, one in a cap, the other balding. Good morning, Margaret. Bob nearly sang around the men. He placed his extra coffee cup on her desk. Thank you, Bob. Good morning to you, she said sweetly. These gentlemen are from Popper House. Hello, Bob said, giving a nod. Merry Christmas, sir, the shorter man bellowed and gestured his hand for a shake. Bob accepted and then shook hands with the taller man while noticing their matching silver bell-shaped badges printed with the Popper House seal. The locally known charity was a shelter and goodwill kitchen for impoverished people, namely children, it was an organization whose name, now politically incorrect, had been grandfathered into acceptable speak by way of their many decades spent caring for those in need. And a Merry Christmas to you gentlemen as well. I'm Bob. Pleasure, Bob, the shorter man said. Might you be the authority we need the audience of for just a moment? Bob hesitated in premonition of where the conversation was headed. I occasionally speak for him, I suppose. Splendid, the shorter man spoke with a thin, undetectable accent. Are you in a position of making contributions on behalf of your employer? Bob hesitated again. I should think that won't be necessary, said another voice entirely. None of the men nor Margaret had noticed Ebenezer Scrooge enter from the sidewalk. He appeared almost two-dimensional, backlit by the day and glowing from its sheen. His tiny glasses reflected the sunlight in a way that was more weapon-like than heavenly. He looked over them, as if not on their level and glared as if from behind a one-way mirror. His navy paisley scarf was a cork to his finely tailored overcoat, which ran to his knees, and was spotted by narrow black pants and shoes as shiny as a newly minted coin. When he turned and saw Scrooge, Bob instantly remembered his righteous condemnation of the man the night before. He felt the unease that always cloaked over Scrooge and said nothing. "'Who are these people?' Scrooge asked, turning to Margaret. "'Popper House, Mr. Scrooge,' she said meekly. The shorter of the two visitors spoke up again. 
Mr. Scrooge, my heavens, what an honest pleasure. He reached out to offer a handshake as he'd done Bob, but was met only with a quick and disgusted glance downward. His hand held there for a moment before retracting again. Sir, at this festive season of the year, many will find a moment to consider the lives of those less fortunate than themselves. Of which season are we speaking, sir? Mr. Scrooge asked after a pause. The taller man laughed a little, and the shorter man continued. Well, of the Christmas season, of course. Hmm. Yes. I thought as much, Scrooge said and paused again. But I'm afraid you gentlemen are mistaken, as I've, in fact, not found such a moment. Not for Christmas, Mr. Scrooge? The short man gasped. Not for anything so childish, no, and I'll ask that you not speak of it any more around members of my staff, whom I've learned are disappointingly impressionable with regard to such foolishness. Scrooge scorned, briefly turning his eyes to Bob. Bob still said nothing. But sir, pleaded the taller man, speaking for the second time and in a decidedly more clear brogue than his associate. What of the poor? What of it? Without the help of well-to-do men such as yourself, they could die. Scrooge would not be threatened. He stood up as straight as his back would allow him, and stepped forward, landing his view mere inches from the eyes of the tall man. Then they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. He whispered, as if the words were a blade that his duty called he was to slide into the man slowly. There followed a moment which felt as long and harsh as February, before Scrooge took a step back and began speaking with a lighter tone. Now, if you'll excuse me, gentlemen, this institution cannot afford the time to make itself merry for Christmas, and cannot afford its revenue to be pardoned for people with which we do not do business. Before either visitor could say another word, Scrooge began to walk on. Good day, he mumbled as he passed the reception desk and carried on toward his controlled chaos. The four remained silent until Scrooge had been around the corner and certainly gone for several moments. Eventually, the shorter man broke the tension. Fortunately, there are a number of other establishments my colleague and I plan to visit before the day is done. He nodded politely. Thank you both for your time. The men turned toward the door, trying not to wear their defeat. Hang on, gentlemen, Bob called and jogged to catch up with them. He dug into the sarcastically deep pockets of his coat and retrieved a few crumpled bills that could have totaled no more than a few dollars. The firm's philosophies on Christmas need not represent that of all of its associates. The men both smiled at Bob. It's not much, but it's plenty when it comes from the heart, Bob. The taller man spoke again. Thank you, the shorter man said. The people thank you. Bob shook his head, troubled to accept their praise, and another thought came to him. Oh, hang on. He reached within his coat for the two candy canes he'd been given at Oliver's. He handed one to each of the men. Merry Christmas, gentlemen. Bless you. The morning carried along at a fair pace, with plenty for Bob and his colleagues to take care of in the processing of the Dooley account. Occasionally, he would rise from his seat to peer over the horizon of cubicles and witness the impermeable focus of the floor. If there was any virtue in their employer constantly assuming the role of the villain— It was that harmony was a reliable state among equals at the firm. In an exhibition of teamwork and care for thy brother reminiscent of Christmas itself, the entire staff worked their hardest to ensure that each of them could finish their duty with plenty of time left in the day to spend with loved ones and to pick up friends at the airport and bake pies and play Uno. It was surely no more than a moment of poor judgment when David Chillip, the accountant two desks away from Bob, opened an email from a friend which had regrettably enclosed within it a boisterous music file of Pocklebell's Canon in D, 
a piece of classical music which you've often heard around the holidays. Like a frantic alarm clock that a weary waker could not seem to deactivate, Chillip drew his face into the computer in search of the mute button. Bob peered over his cubicle once again in search of the music source and was met with the concerned eyes of all the other surrounding accountants. They looked back and forth at one another and down at Chillip as the symphony roared on. A song which is so traditionally synonymous with peace rang through the hollow room like a battle cry, and in reality likely only for a few bars before it was ceased, though it felt to Bob and his associates like the extended Midnight Mass version. When the song was finally stopped, the silence that lingered was as disturbing as the noise. The accountants continued to look at one another, excluding Chillip, whose face was sitting in his palm, mortified. Bob was the first to brave an upward glance in the direction of Scrooge's window, where a wicked stare often took the symbolic place of Nero's fiddle. It took its place then, and winter overcame him again. It is quite wicked to combine a stare of anger with a playful grin. This was a specialty expression for Scrooge, the condescending look. It's quite possible that condescending is the most evil one can be, short of murderer and child thief. Though Scrooge was certainly neither of the latter, he embodied the former so finely in his demeanor that it was truly believed in the hearts of his most forgiving and kindly servants that evil he truly was. It took only the moment between noticing Scrooge's condescending look and it fading back behind a white shear for Bob to determine he believed in that evil too. When moments later the following email came, he had reached his final nerve. 2. All Staff Re. Rest of the Day Mr. Cratchit, Welling, Smith, Chillip, and Buss will handle remaining urgencies for the day. Others may leave at five on the condition they're in all the earlier on the 26th. E.S. Reading this, a rage swept over Bob. The fury was comparable to his of the night before, only decidedly more succinct. He felt the blood rush into his face, his heart begin to race, and his vision blur as he welcomed back his most duplicitous idea. An idea which could possibly be described as evil, though, by Bob's appraisal, no more evil than Scrooge. A second email then arrived in Bob's inbox, this one from Chillup, with the subject line, Sorry. But Bob hadn't the time for Chillup. His priorities first lay in the telephone calls he needed to make to Fred Hollywell and his son Arthur. After that, he would work more quickly and thoroughly than ever before to complete the remaining urgencies of the day. Bob Cratchit then needed every minute of that Christmas Eve he could grab onto, It was about to be a very late night. The floor of Scrooge and Marley brokerage on which Bob worked was like a casino for only one reason. There were no windows to the outside, no portals to freedom. Although somehow, when evening came over the building, there was no denying its presence. Cratchit, Welling, Smith, Chillip, and Buss pushed themselves to an all-new best for the duration of the afternoon. The rest of Scrooge's employees were gone by one minute past five, and by 6.44, filing was completed on the Dooley account. Pages continued to swish across Bob's mind like lifeless corporate sugar plums. The five men looked up at one another and shared an exhausted nod of congratulations. As they put on their coats, the door of Scrooge's office rattled closed. The desolate old man lurched down the stairs, his overcoat on, and a tall collar shielding him from having to acknowledge the other men. Bob watched for a moment. As Scrooge turned the corner and disappeared into the foggy evening, not a shroud of Christmas in his step. It was then that his plan commenced. Reaching into his deep pocket, Bob retrieved his cell phone and opened a text message from Arthur. 6.31 p.m. 
Arthur. We're all here, sitting in the pub across from the townhouse. 6.32 p.m. Arthur. We've got Fred's van parked one over on Jess Pence Drive. Bob began to walk swiftly out of his office, his eyes not leaving the phone. Good night, Bob, Welling called. Merry Christmas. I'm so sorry you got stuck here on my account, Bob, Chillip said. Say hello to Emily and the kids for me. Don't worry about it, David. No harm done, Bob called back as he continued out. Night, gentlemen. Merry Christmas. He was crafting a response. 6.45 p.m. Bob. Scrooge just left. Keep an eye out. How's Fred? Arthur responded quickly. 6.45 p.m. Arthur. A bit manic, Pop. Is he going to be cool? 6.45 p.m. Bob. I think so. I hope so, anyway. 6.45 p.m. Bob. Be there soon. 6.46 p.m. Arthur. Okay. He ejected onto the sidewalk and into the sea of people. If not for the balmy conditions, the crowds alone could have been posed for a beautiful Christmas portrait. Last-minute shoppers lugging large bags, carolers strolling in pods. Bob halted for long enough only to get his bearings. As he'd done all afternoon over cubicle ledges, he hoisted himself as tall as possible and easily spotted Scrooge's black town car a hundred yards ahead. Bob set into action, approached the edge of the curb, and waved for a taxi. He gave the driver his coordinates and otherwise chatted minimally, never letting the town car leave his sight. In hindsight, Bob would tell you he could remember very little from the early parts of that evening. He was fueled by adrenaline and hyperfixated on his lawless plan. I feel it's crucial to acknowledge at this point a shift will take place with regard to your evaluation of our characters until now, and very likely through other literature. You've come to understand Bob Cratchit as a mild-mannered, family man, the gentle sort, unlikely to participate or far less orchestrate, a risky and self-serving caper. In witnessing his sudden adjustment in character, you must please consider that though seen in a certain way, most issues are never wholly black or white. Just as one would be hard-pressed to ever spot a pure act of altruism, there are very often motives of good intent behind the wrong things that people do. For example, Ebenezer Scrooge's years spent shutting people out was a symptom of a fear that all people would eventually stop loving him as they had done thus far in his life. By behaving cruelly, he believed no one could ever conflict themselves with him in the first place. Bob Cratchit had chosen to do something he knew was not only morally wrong, but also illegal and an act of insanity. In spite of this, he is our protagonist nonetheless. He hoped his actions would acquire him more respect at work, therefore more time to spend with his family. Yes, these are respectable desires, but fooling Scrooge into being a nicer person was not the appropriate way of achieving them. SMB employed a director of human resources whose job it was to intervene when a superior is mistreating his employee. Surely, Bob could have contacted that director or perhaps a member of the labor board. He also was fully entitled to leave his job at Scrooge's firm and find work under more pleasant circumstances. But instead, against all the force of logic he'd spent decades collecting, Bob had determined his smartest option was to assemble a team of equally motivated helpers, break and enter into Scrooge's East End townhouse, haunt him with the Christmas spirit he so sternly rejected, and force him to promise to be more kind, lest bitter death come after him. Without reasonable question, even if for only a night, Bob Cratchit had lost his mind. His concentration only drifted from course for long enough to briefly think of Emily, who had taken Simon and Belinda to the seven o'clock mass. Tim and Kate had both told their respective mothers they would be attending church with the other's family, and Arthur made an excuse about having only that evening to catch up with an old friend from high school. 
Those three, along with Fred Hollywell, sat in the large window of Twist Tavern opposite Scrooge's townhouse. Fred wore a dirty suit and a white kerchief tied around his head and in a knot on the top of his forehead. Those four watched a black car arrive, as did Bob, from a block away where he paid his driver. 6.58 p.m. Arthur. He just pulled up. 6.58 p.m. Bob. I see. I'll come to you when he goes inside. All eyes were on the unsuspecting Scrooge as he ascended his stoop, leather glove, on the iron rail. When he reached the top, he removed his gloves and fought with arthritic fingers to clasp the proper key. Bob crept carefully toward the house, ready to dodge Scrooge's possible glance and never letting his sight waver. But Bob stopped when Scrooge stopped, seemingly already having inserted his key, and watched on as the old man began to step back from the door. The door was styled in suitable uniform with the rest of the house. It was once the entrance to the home chambers of Jacob Marley and was left to Scrooge upon his death, along with all the other doors as well as windows, walls, and shingles. Since that death seven years before, the house had lost its state of glamour and begun to rot in its lack of care. It was of Victorian architecture and decorated with tarnished brass fixtures. One such fixture was its rather gaudy door knocker, which managed to reflect a small amount of moonlight. Scrooge stood a step back from the door and gently leaned toward the knocker, adjusting his glasses and flipping them up and down, as if they might have been failing him. In its glare, he thought he'd spotted something impossible. The silhouette of a man in a familiar suit, bound by a headkerchief. Scrooge whipped his body around, kinking his back and seizing for a moment, giving Fred, Arthur, Tim, and Kate the chance to dodge from the tavern window. He saw nothing but a quiet street, free of community, and some dim lights in the other houses and shops. He coughed a ghostly cloud of breath, grinned, and shook his head, surely telling himself to stop being so foolish. Bob watched in fear as the old man returned to his door and disappeared inside. You were almost seen, was the first thing Bob said, scolding Fred, as he entered the tavern. I think I was seen, Fred admitted, and isn't that the point anyway? Seen, yes, of course, Bob said. Recognized? I hope to God not. He turned to face the other three. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming along. Merry Christmas, Kate said, clutching Tim's arm on behalf of him. Kate, dear, you're not judging me too harshly, I hope, Bob said. She laughed a little. Not in the least. This is going to be fun. I've been waiting years for you to show a dark side, Pop, Arthur remarked, smiling. Bob turned to his oldest son and smiled half-heartedly. He was quite sure earning the respect of his family was not something he wished to do only by committing a crime. He was also a bit disturbed by their eagerness to be involved. It was occurring to Bob then that it may have been grossly non-fatherly and indeed irresponsible to involve his darling children. Still, they stood before him, aware of their father's intentions, and there was no undoing that awareness now. It somehow already felt like he'd passed the point of no return. Though their leader, Bob's confederates operated on personal drive as well, Arthur had wished for years to see his father assume a higher level of self-respect, as did Tim, though he also was more inclined to get up to mischief for merely the sake of it. And both were thrilled to assist in any way they could. Kate, having spent a great deal of time with the Cratchit family, had an understanding of Scrooge's impression on it, and specifically on Bob, who she had come to see as a second father. She also had felt honored to be specifically requested for the errand, and in any case, leapt at the opportunity to further nurse Tim's injured leg. This left Fred the unwaveringly loyal friend to Bob and inexplicable nephew to Scrooge. If asked, Bob Cratchit could not have explained how Fred came to be a part of his life. 
He was rarely ever around the office for more than a few minutes before being shooed, and there were hundreds of other Scrooge and Marley employees who he might have taken to. Perhaps Fred sympathized with Bob's position. Perhaps he appreciated Bob's tolerance of Scrooge's cruelty. It seemed, after all, that Fred's affinity for family and his want to share tidings could not be faulted. It was very likely that Fred saw in the Cratchits the family which he'd long dreamed of having himself. This was why, though not ideal conditions, he agreed to accomplice Bob in an effort to instill in Scrooge a bolder understanding of the importance of family. In a rare moment of sternness, he had said, Sure, Bob, I'll do whatever I can. Bob nodded solemnly. What's the matter, old friend? Fred asked, shucking Bob on the shoulder. You're looking a bit ghostly. I thought that was my job. Bob managed to smile. Well, shall we? Arthur bent down to retrieve a milk crate, within which was stored bounds of cables, the Cratchit's heavy spotlight, and a long coil of industrial flapper chain. We shall. The fogged-over moon on the breast of the moistened grass gave the luster of exactly 7.15, when five cloaked figures crossed the street and filed into the alley against Scrooge's house. There were no passers-by in the neighborhood. Folks had retreated to their own living rooms and paid no mind to the lack of Christmas atmosphere. Arthur laid the crate on the pavement, assuring the chains rattle as little as possible. All that resonated were muffled sounds from a television which flickered light against the windows above the team's head. Okay, you three wait here, Bob whispered, pointing to Arthur, Tim, and Kate. Leave your phones on silent. If for any reason anything seems amiss, send me a message and then get out immediately. Okay, Pop, Arthur whispered. Good luck, Kate added. Give him hell. Tim said, grinning. Bob, in a twitch of habit, resisted the urge to correct Tim's disrespect and nodded. He turned to Fred, who wore his costume like an understudy soldier shipping off for a very real war. His face did not boast confidence, but stared back in command. Ready, Captain. At ease, Bob joked. You were born for this. Stave 3 If the first crime committed by Bob Cratchit was conspiracy... The second was trespassing, though it may not have discontinued the plan to have to jimmy a lock when they reached Scrooge's back cellar door. Fred impressed Bob by revealing a spare key. Granted, he only had it because he'd been asked to feed Jacob Marley's cat eight years before, when Marley had taken a cruise to the Mediterranean. When Scrooge moved into the chambers, Fred held on to it as a means of feeling connected to his uncle. Still, the key only serviced the padlock which sealed the cellar door. The unlikely duo sauntered inside. Fred pulled the wooden planks back behind them, and Bob flicked a Bic lighter to be their guide. From within, the television above could be heard more clearly, and it appeared to be Jeopardy it was airing. Alex Trebek could be identified easily. This holiday song says, I'm a poor boy too. David Bowie sang Peace on Earth. Little drummer boy, Fred whispered to Bob, who instantly put his index finger over his mouth. Shauna, said Trebek. What is little drummer boy, said Shauna. Bah, shouted Scrooge from the floor above. There's no telling why he would watch any program, which surely was a rerun on Christmas Eve, that angered him so. Then again, there seemed to be very little which didn't anger Scrooge. He would watch it almost no longer, though, as next on the itinerary was to disconnect the electricity. Found it, whispered Bob, standing before a large switch box. Fred approached it also as Bob unlatched its door and scanned the breakers with his lighter. All power was labeled at the top. Bob took a deep breath and held it, 
while carefully clamping the switch over. Though it had seemed pitch dark before, some light must have leaked beneath the basement door as then the cellar became even darker. Jeopardy stopped as well, and there was a beat before Bob and Fred heard the clunk of Scrooge tossing his TV remote onto the floor. Outside, Arthur, Tim, and Kate made note of the dashing lights. Arthur produced a small bicycle bell held in the direction of Scrooge's window and began flicking it over and over. After only a moment, he stopped cold. The bell served two purposes, to spook Scrooge and to distract him from the sound of Fred in his basement dressing in drapes of clanging flapper chains. Though they did make some racket, Scrooge never came to the window or the basement door to investigate the peculiarities, and so Bob determined the sounds had done their job. He whispered once more, and now we wait. The thirty-some minutes that followed showed Bob a new side of his accomplice. Fred Hollywell was rarely not the most chatty fellow in the room, far less the entirely silent one. He sat on a box and could only be vaguely seen in shape when Bob hadn't flicked the lighter in a while and allowed time for his eyes to adjust to the darkness. He showed no signs of the anxiety Bob felt within, and though he wore fifteen pounds of chains on his shoulders and a kerchief around his head, no sweat glazed his brow. In the time since the stifling of the electricity, Arthur, Tim, and Kate kept eyes on Scrooge's activity from the outside, looking through windows. These correspondence occurred between Arthur and his father. 8.19 p.m. Arthur. He's reading by candle. 8.21 p.m. Bob. Keep me updated. 8.38 p.m. Bob. Question mark? Question mark? 8.38 p.m. Arthur. He's still reading. 8.42 p.m. Arthur. Wait. I think he left the room. 8.42 p.m. Bob. Did he go to bed? 8.43 p.m. Bob. You're supposed to tell me as soon as he goes to bed. 8.43 p.m. Arthur. But the candle's still on. 8.43 p.m. Bob. Can you see in from a different angle? 8.45 p.m. Arthur. Hang on, he's back. There he is. 8.45 p.m. Arthur. He must have gone to the bathroom. 8.46 p.m. Bob. Keep me updated. 8.57 p.m. Bob. Question mark? Question mark? 8.57 p.m. Arthur. Still reading. 9 o'clock p.m. Arthur. The light's moving. 9.01 p.m. Arthur. Yeah, he's definitely going upstairs, Pop. 9.01 p.m. Bob. Okay, you sure? 9.02 p.m. Arthur. Yeah, I saw the light go upwards, and now it's in the room two floors above me. 9.02 p.m. Arthur. I can't see in at him anymore. 9.03 p.m. Bob. Okay, we'll give it a few minutes. 9.03 p.m. Arthur. Okay. 9.10 p.m. Arthur. The candle just went out. I think he's going to sleep. 9.10 p.m. Bob. Then that's our cue. It is, in fact, a brave thing to be alone in either momentary circumstances or isolated lifestyle. Conversely, it's considerably braver to agree to share quarters with another on the condition that emotional reciprocity is never compromised. In summation, it is brave to live at all. And it is no sign of unbravery for a man to be uncomfortable with power failures while in a rickety old dead man's house, alone or otherwise. No matter how suspicious Scrooge's house may have been, 
I can say with absolute certainty that there were exactly zero ghosts inside it on the Christmas Eve seven years after Jacob Marley's death. That said, Scrooge was not wrong to suspect he might not be alone. And if his company had been ghosts, it would be of his arrogance to assume they might choose to bother with him. But Scrooge knew, as we knew, that there aren't any ghosts, and still I cannot call him unwise for checking beneath his bed before crawling into it. At eleven minutes past nine, Bob flicked his lighter and found bearing with Fred's face. It looked perfectly straight. You ready, Jacob? Bob whispered. Fred paused a moment and began to smile. Sure, Cratchit, now lighten up, won't you? He jested in his perfect Marley brogue. Overcome by a cocktail of his own wickedness and a rare moment of faith, Bob grinned massively, but only for a moment, and was caught quickly by the slowly creaking knob of the basement door. Their space was still completely dark, but the door's moan was unmistakable. At this point, either Scrooge had found Bob's children, forced them to lie about him going to bed, and was coming for Bob next, or things were going exactly to plan. And indeed the latter. Humbug! came a whisper from where the door had opened. Bob shined his lighter to reveal Arthur. Spotting each other, they quickly met in the middle and embraced. Where's your brother? Bob asked. He's in the van. Kate's outside the house. You got in fast. Nothing to stop me, Arthur shrugged. He referred quite simply to modern security detection. Yes, of course, a man as wealthy as Scrooge would have installed suitable burglar alarms and motion detectors in his home. But a man as cheap as Scrooge would not have invested in the generator needed to keep those functions alive when the power is disconnected, you see? Scrooge would have preferred to sue the power company the next morning. Bob knew this about the house from having processed Jacob Marley's will seven years before. The back door was easy to pick open anyway, Arthur continued. It is disconcerting to a father to know of his son's proficiency in such things, Bob said. It's disconcerting to a son to know of his father's proficiency in such things, Arthur accused right back. Fred laughed softly at the two. The chains on his shoulders ran off of him and were bunched into their milk crate. Arthur lifted the crate, and the three men spent five painfully careful minutes climbing the basement stairs, ensuring that Fred not rattle. Time was then something they had aplenty, but room for error, absolutely not. The basement door led to Scrooge's main level hallway, which was better lit by the moon. It was then Fred's unfortunate duty to stand perfectly still while Bob and Arthur scurried about preparing their next ploy. Arthur trotted to the back door from where he came, and returned dragging an extension cable which wrapped around Scrooge's house and through the hedges to Jess Pence Drive, where Fred's van was parked. Bob reached into the milk crate and retrieved the spotlight. He pressed its lens against his chest gently, took the end of the cable from Arthur, and attached it, revealing only a small ray of red light, which was otherwise blocked. Seeing that it worked, he quickly detached it, and the lights disappeared again. You know where to go? Bob asked Arthur. Up the stairs. He should be right above us, Arthur said. Bob turned to the still and quiet Fred Hollywell. It's showtime. You ready? Fred smirked, a look of worry that he would have needed to be a sociopath to be without. Boo, he whispered. Arthur, you stay here, Bob said, lifting the milk crate. I've got the light. As Bob and Fred crept toward the base of Scrooge's staircase, they allowed for a little bit of rattling to happen in the chains. The stairs were very steep, narrow, and varying in height and distance between. They looked up in an awesome way, as they'd done the day before from Bob's cubicle, but the day before's fear held no candle to the feeling they had then. The first step was Bob's. 
A safe and comforting sound of silence followed his first foot's placement, and then his second came. The next step was Fred's, which not only creaked loudly and echoed up the walls, but was then met with the sound of his chain crashing into the stair. They made faces of worry. After stalling a moment and saying nothing, Bob held his finger in front of Fred, indicating he stay put and began to climb the stairs alone. About halfway up, Bob could see over the ledge of the floor that Scrooge lay in bed, his back to the door. Next to the king-size four-poster bed was a matching nightstand on which Bob spotted Scrooge's infamous wiry spectacles folded neatly over a copy of the Wall Street Journal. Turning to face Fred, he mouthed the words, Wait right here. In practice of a trick he'd only ever seen in Dirty Harry movies, Bob pulled his collar over his mouth and continued his ascent. At the top, he ever so slowly approached Scrooge's bedroom door, which was barely ajar. The shirt was meant to muffle the sound of his breathing, filter it into a stale atmosphere. What hadn't occurred to Bob at that time was that he wasn't breathing at all and made no noise to soften. All that fueled him was the small amount of pride in his instinct and the knowledge that there was no turning back. Still, his heartbeat told the tale and felt as though it was knocking on the door which Bob magnificently slipped himself past. If given the time, Bob had looked around the room, he would have spotted an array of curious Ebenezer artifacts. The empty frame which once held his first earned, long-cashed, paycheck. The well-groomed ficus which suggested Scrooge did in fact have some care for life after all. And the black and white photograph, stuck on his mirror and curling on its corners, of a beautiful young lady and a perfectly handsome young man, very much in love. But there occupied no space in Bob's mind for idle window shopping. In that moment, he had but one object on his Christmas list, and with a swift snatch, the wish was granted. He shoved Scrooge's glasses into his deep pocket and backed away slowly, not looking away from the unconscious Scrooge. He slipped back through the door and headed for Fred, who waited for him on the stairs, chains still intact. This is going to be a breeze, Bob whispered. It showed incredible confidence to say anything at all, but that statement took Fred aback. Without waiting for a response, Bob got to work propping the spotlight milk crate on a stair and aiming its lens at the wall directly across from Scrooge's bedroom doorway. Without even a word of warning, he instantly flicked on the light, no chest to block its intense red ray, and suddenly the corridor was illuminated like dusk. Fred's eyes widened in terror. What are you doing? He begged, finally speaking. Bob said nothing, but looked Fred in the eye for only a moment, a sinister gaze, and turned to grab one of the chains and ferociously beat it against the wooden stairs. It waved through the whole coil, draining an echoed drawl along the walls. It would have been surprising if outside Kate couldn't hear the sound, far less Scrooge a mere ten feet away. And when the racket trailed off, Bob did it again. The planks of wood likely suffering egregious scarring as steel came down on them with the force of a man who could be pushed no further. After two lashes, Bob let it go as quiet as it had been before. He waited a moment while the rush carried through him and listened to a terrorized whimper coming from the bedroom. Who, who, who's, who's there? Scrooge whispered from his bed. Fred, smartly knowing his moment was then, banished all that kept him from assuming his character, and without any more hesitation, stepped into the light. From the pit of his diaphragm, he summoned his boldest Jacob Marley. Scrooge! He howled out in the echo of the halls. Above Fred and Bob, there was a cautious creak, 
of the bedroom door being opened. Before Scrooge was a screen colored by the shadows of blood and encasing the silhouette of a man in chains, a headkerchief, and an unmistakable suit. Come no closer, Fred bellowed. Bob looked amazed at his Marley on the stair next to him, and then up at the twelve-foot apparition. Come no further, Scrooge, Fred said again, in desperate hopes Scrooge had cowered. Okay, okay, fine, Scrooge shouted back in terror. But who are you? What, what are you? Now, Scrooge, Fred said coyly, are you to tell me that you don't recognize your old partner? Not your only friend? Jacob, Scrooge stammered. Jacob Marley? It can't be you. It can't be Jacob. His voice was frail and of a nature that Bob Cratchit had only dreamed of hearing for years. Far too many times he'd been bullied into such a state of intimidation by that very man, and to have the tables turned, even in the wildest of circumstances, was unspeakably empowering. It was all Bob could do not to peek over the ledge at the old man's surely foolish bedwear and squinting eyes. You do not believe me, Scrooge? Fred played. I I certainly don't, Scrooge yelled unconvincingly. Why do you doubt your senses? Because the littlest thing could affect them, he began. A rotten meal, a flashback to the 60s. There's more of grateful dead about you than any other kind. Fred shrieked again, even startling Bob a little. Don't be clever with me, fool! Scrooge shrunk even more. If you have no faith in my presence, why then do you fear me? For sensibility, Scrooge said. I fear for my life, but not of ghosts. Bob, standing at the stairs just out of the red ray, grabbed a dangling chain and tugged on it getting Fred's attention. He signaled for Fred to step out of the light. When Marley's shadow disappeared, Fred carried on with his role play. What but a ghost can disappear, Ebenezer? Bob crouched down and motioned for Fred to climb back on his shoulders so he could be raised above the ledge and seen plainly through Scrooge's blurred vision. Indeed, what but a ghost can hover the way I do? Fred asked as he rose slowly with his hands reached out like a weakened crucifixion and chains hanging from his arms like shredded clothing. Fred then saw his fractured uncle, hunched and shielding his eyes from the red light. Marley? Scrooge asked in astonishment. Jacob Marley, can it really be? Fred only nodded slowly, again a bit bothered by the cruelty of their fraudulence. Oh, my dear friend, what's become of you? Speak comfort to me, Jacob. Would you know comfort if you heard it, Scrooge? Fred asked in a softer Marley. Have you even an understanding of virtue? Scrooge breathed heavily in panic. Why do you haunt me, Jacob? It is my duty as once the man who assisted you in life to assist you now, to warn you of what's to come, Scrooge, if great things aren't assumed. Fred spoke calmly and with a command of words unusual for him. What are you to warn me of, Jacob? Scrooge asked. Am I soon to bear similar chains? I wear the chains I forged in life, chains you continue to forge now in your living. Indeed, a fate so grave could ensnare you, Scrooge. But why such punishment? You were always such a good man of business. Business? Fred shouted. Selfishness was my business. While the world spun madly around us, business was but a way to hide. And it was selfish, old man, as you've gone on to be since my departure. It's been seven years, Jacob. Scrooge remarked. Fred's Marley became a menacing whisper. Seven years of torture, Ebenezer. Seven years of remorse. Fred was still sitting on Bob's shoulders. 
If you could see the face of his leader, you would have seen an untamable grin. Still engulfed in a fury of hot halogen, Bob was in awe of Fred's talents for improvisation. His talking with Scrooge was going better than ever expected until what followed, which was an extemporaneous liberty taken disastrously too far. But how am I to avoid this torture, Jacob? Scrooge asked, still fearful. You must help me, old friend. My time is running out, Fred said. All I can do to help is remind you of the time you've left to avoid my fate, Scrooge. Scrooge watched on, and Bob continued to smile. If still your senses don't convince you, Fred's Marley began, perhaps further convincing is in order. Perhaps less familiar spirits will change that wretched heart. Bob's smile went slant, and he shot his head up to watch. Though he held tightly onto Fred, Fred was being carried away nonetheless. You will be visited by three more, Scrooge, Fred continued as Bob's eyes widened. This, as you might have guessed, was not part of the plan. Bob ground his fingers into Fred's thighs. Fred, evidently a consummate performer, simply used it as a means to let out a final vicious howl. Scrooge was startled and let out a loud gasp. Must you leave me, Jacob? He asked. Leave again if there is worse to come? Bob's high was struck, and his heart began to race. His legs then suddenly gave out, forcing Fred to collapse down on him. Clatters resound in the cavernous hall as chains crashed into the planks, as if his plan had failed already. Bob began to scoop the chains with his arms and roll them into a pile. His panic was creating chaos, and strangely, only Fred knew how to handle it. Come no further, Ebenezer, he howled again, pushing Bob out of the way and casting his shadow in the red light. Have your rest, and await your next visitor, and see me no more. With that, Fred pulled the extension cable, forcing it to disconnect from the spotlight, and darkness set in again. He grabbed the milk crate, and instead of collecting the chains within it, began to barge down the stairs, away from the scene. The chains dragged along, ringing off the wood and creating a monstrous wake. Bob, now as terrified as Scrooge, snapped himself back into play and rapidly followed behind Fred, who moved as if no iron weighed on him. At the base of the stairway, they turned the corner and headed for the back of the house. Bob spotted their extension cable and grabbed it to ensure it followed them. They reached Arthur, whose worried eyes matched his father's. He joined in on the race behind Fred, daring not to check behind him in case Scrooge's nerve had found itself. They only prayed that the shock of the moment and Scrooge's poor vision had grounded him. In a hurricane rush, which Bob had once foolishly considered not likely, the three intruders burst away from their crime scene. They followed the cable to the back door, which was wedged slightly ajar, and Bob slammed it shut behind him. Cutting across the lawn, Bob stopped only to motion for Kate, who still stood against the wall of the house to run to them. They went into the hedge, where the rest of the cable was stowed. The fog was with them again, and air that never felt so fresh. The streetlights revealed not another soul, and the four continued to retreat, crouching behind shrubbery. Arthur, who was tall, ran with his body slumped forward in a 90-degree angle, and Fred still didn't slow down in spite of the chains on his shoulders. The chains, though, had finally softened in noise, as now they slid through wet grass. In no more than 30 seconds, Bob, Fred, Arthur, and Kate had abandoned their posts and made it to Jespen's Drive where Fred's van was parked and still running. Their dash concluded when Tim, having seen them expel from the bushes, swung its door open and welcomed them to pour inside, followed by the last of their trailing extension cable. Fred collapsed on a seat, his eyes barely open, and instantly Arthur shot to the front of the vehicle, ready for their clean break. Tim was the first to speak. 
What happened? Did something go wrong? Bob responded not with words, but by turning over from his crumpled state on the floor of the van and beginning to hit Fred on the shoulder with his closed fist over and over. Ah! Fred yelled. Stop it! I'm sorry! You idiot! Bob yelled back, then immediately stopped hitting him when his knuckle hit the chain and shot pain through his fist. What's your problem, Cratchit? Fred screamed in an all-new anguish. It was fine. We did the job. It was fine, Bob agreed, before pausing to collect and calm himself. You had it, Fred. You were doing wonderfully. Why on earth did you promise him three more visits? If they don't arrive, he could just chalk it up as a gag. He could go on to be even more awful than ever. Kate, Tim, and Arthur said nothing, and all faced forward at the still road. Fred's eyes then closed completely, and he assumed a look of overwhelmed sadness. His drenched hands went over his face, and he lay there, overcome by the insanity. After a long pause, he removed his hands and said, I did my best. It nearly scared the life out of my uncle. That's my family, and in the very worst-case scenario, we're no worse off than we were. Bob let out a long overdue exhalation. He slumped down and turned away, reaching for his cell phone. It displayed the notes of three missed calls and two text messages. 10.06 p.m. Emily. You must be through work soon. 10.09 p.m. Emily. Please come home for Christmas. It's so quiet here. Bob read the messages again and again and began to let the regret drift over him as he was doing for Fred. There was a woman an angel of a woman, who was the smartest and wisest person he'd come to meet. She had remarkably only made one mistake. Choose Bob. He didn't begrudge her that. He simply believed it so. His darling wife had made him the luckiest man in the world for 24 years, and even at Christmas, she held her understanding. Bob thought back on the first time he let her down, years before. The Christmas before their marriage, he had been unable to afford a gift for Emily. She cried, not for the lack of a gift, but for Bob's poor state. He told her, I never would have thought you could look anything other than perfect. Now that I've seen you cry, I know that I'm right. He wished with all his heart he could come up with a perfect thing to say like he had then. But how could his actions be explained? How could he expect her to understand such mania? He reached for Fred's shoe and grabbed it in a tired substitute for a hug and an apology. Let's get out of here, buddy, he said to Arthur. Am I driving? Arthur asked. Yeah, if you don't mind, Fred piped up. Not at all, but I need your keys. Fred summoned just the strength needed to reach into his jacket pocket. The jingling metal sounds came only from his chains. Fred's other hand shot to his leg, and he began to feel around frantically. Bob watched in shock as Fred rustled about and then paused, closing his eyes. Oh my good God, he whispered. Fred, Bob began before being cut off. They're in the cellar, Bob. We left through the back door instead of through the cellar. His face washed into a stone-like gray as the severity struck him. There's no telling how long the van was silent after that claim. Hiding in shadows and pacing through adrenaline-soaked break-in operations had dulled their senses for gauging time. This went especially for Bob, who had succumbed to his own imagination and allowed himself to be hypnotized by its dark side. It was, at the very least, two full minutes before Bob reasoned to say, Okay, This is my fault. I'll go back. I left them, Bob, Fred said. It's every bit as much my doing as it is yours. Fred, that's just not true. In the years we've known each other, you've never once said a bad word about your uncle. Your being here is entirely of my influence. You can't go alone, though, Dad, 
Tim spoke up in unusual compassion. Well, he's not going to, Fred assured. I'll be in and out, Fred, Bob insisted. There's no need for you to risk us both being caught. A smirk came to Fred's face, which would have made Bob proud, if not for this moment of discouragement. But there's plenty need if we're to visit three more times. Bob took a moment to understand. No. No way are we taking this any further. I've been a selfish fool to drag you all along on this fantasy suicide mission. He looked around at his band of bandits. Arthur and Tim turned around from the front seat and looked at him confidently. Kate reached out to put her hand on Bob's shoulder. Guys, to change the beat of Scrooge's heart is to change the direction of a wave. They let that lesson settle. After a beat, Arthur asked his father, Do you remember last year, during reading week, when you came to visit me in London? Bob then nodded. Arthur continued by explaining the rest to the other people in the van. It was amazing. We took a train to Italy, then a boat to Greece, where we took surfing lessons. Bob smiled at the memory. And you were terrible, Pop. It beat the hell out of you. Bob laughed a little. You may not be able to change the direction of a wave, but you can't ride it either. It's beating the hell out of you. So we may as well wreak a little havoc, added Fred. Bob looked at his friend and let his eyes beg for one final push. I never would have thought you to be afraid of some silly ghost story, Fred finished, grinning proudly. Bob let the challenge soak in through his pores. Whatever bit of him had awoken his nefarious urges once still lived within. Okay, you want to do this? He asked, mostly in the direction of Arthur and Tim. His boys nodded eagerly. Well, who am I to stop a Christmas wish from coming true? Bob's team erupted into a feeble yet triumphant hooray. He instantly raised his hands to calm them, assuming his leadership once again. We're going to need to map this thing out as we go, he said. There will be no room for carelessness. Fred collected his might and pulled the chains from his shoulders. He sat up straight and said, Well, we're going to need a new ghost. Bob's gears clicked forward as he thought again about Emily and the Christmas when he vowed to never again let his loved ones down. The ghost of Christmas passed, he mumbled, while still lost in thought. Kate, dear, would you like a turn? Stave 4 As I grow further into manhood, I find myself in the awkward position of not knowing how to make Christmas wishes. Throughout the year, I'm fortunate enough that I can act on impulses of desire by satisfying them with money, and such lifestyle circumstances would render a man positively inhuman if he were to then search for a reason to complain. Still, the time of year comes when my mother requires of me a list of Christmas wishes, and to respond without just that is simply unhelpful. A mother doesn't actually have the option of not buying Christmas gifts for her son, and though it sounds darling of me to want for nothing, it would be untrue to say that I'd be fine with it. Fortunately, I have a mother who never fails to make me realize what I never knew I wanted so badly. Admittedly, my family has done a nearly perfect job of helping my brother and I relive the magic of those childhood holidays. Nearly perfect. Hold only for the unshakable knowledge between us that these holidays are truly gone, and thus also the magic. If I could make one grown-up Christmas wish, it would be that we could go back. All of us. The ghost of Christmas past was just barely fresher in the Cratchit family. Belinda and Simon were twelve, and so their understanding of the importance of Christmas was quickly maturing. Upon learning that their oldest brother would not be returning home for the holidays, Belinda cried, and Simon locked himself in his room. The surprise of his arrival gave them an opportunity to appreciate that a family in full is a gift. In fact, it gave the entire family that reminder, and perhaps that was a factor which contributed to Bob Cratchit's sudden sense of adventure. 
If you choose to believe that Bob's unlikely impulses that Christmas Eve were inspired by his love for his family and his perpetual desire to be everything to them, then you choose to believe that Christmas magic is very much alive and that it molds the universe in ways far greater than any Coca-Cola mascot ever could. In the telling of this story, I've thus far made a concerted effort to minimize reference to more traditional mediums in which our characters have been represented. With all due respect to Mr. Dickens, in my own exploration of the elusive true meaning of Christmas, I've arrived at empathy for Bob Cratchit, which goes a step beyond his well-documented capacity for mistreatment by Scrooge. It occurs to me that each of us, in our 50-plus journeys between Sunday and Sunday, reaches Christmas with an all-new collection of sins, moments when we exhibited spite, impatience, selfishness, etc. For more than 170 years, we've learned and relearned of Scrooge's multifaceted propensity to show his many flaws. For better or for worse, I've taken it on as my duty to attempt to balance the dichotomy by highlighting some of Bob's shortcomings as well, and furthermore, in part that he too, you'll find, is a thoroughly redeemable man. Take, for example, his fondness for Kate, the manual additive to his family with whom he entrusted his entire operation. Though the hour remained an early one, Bob and his team were being well-consumed by lethargy as they waited for Kate's return. In the van, they lounged in quiet alertness and certainly controlled impatience. Particularly Tim, who had removed his injured leg from its wrap and was rapidly scrolling through the Twitter feed on his phone in a feeble effort to distract himself from the fact that his girlfriend was very much on her own. How long's she been gone? He asked his father. Only 18 minutes, Bob said, checking his watch. There was some charm to Tim's concern for Kate and his fear that she might have gotten in over her head. Though he was not a young man with the tendency to share his feelings, said concern was made evident by the fact that he'd not asked how long they had been gone when his brother Arthur had also left for phase two of their break-in. Arthur accepted that role quite willingly and in fact insisted Bob stay back. Fred Hollywell's contribution to that portion had been given half an hour before when he and Kate convened for a thorough discussion about Scrooge's past. Fred had once been the closest of friends with his dear mother, Fan. As a child, he held an unbreakable admiration for her ability to work hard, provide for her family, and also maintain a wonderful sense of humor. As a younger man, he ensured to visit her house for dinner every Sunday. And in the months leading up to her passing, Fred never left her side, blithe to be companion to her telling and retelling of the same old stories. The stories, as is often the case with sufferers of Fan's affliction, harken back to her days as a child, Her younger brother, Ebby, regularly made appearances in those stories and often struck Fred as a sweeter sort than he had ever interpreted him firsthand. It was the Scrooge family's heavy-handed father who had pressured Ebby into certain philosophies about hard work and its fruits. As Fred relayed the history of Bob's employer, clarity formed with regard to how Fred had managed such a high threshold for patience for Scrooge over the years. The suspicion was confirmed when Fred told of a time when his mother, in one of her final moments of lucidity, begged him to reach out to Ebenezer and to search for his lost kindness. Mum said that if it could be found, I'd be the one to find it, he said softly. The others listened as honesty poured from Fred in a way that made Bob feel guilty again for spearheading the war on Scrooge's coldness. If the plan was too far along to discontinue, at the very least, it was of value for all of them to learn of Scrooge's humanities. But what had simply never occurred to Bob was that Scrooge's coldness and inhumanities alike could be so well-sourced within the hearts of people who had inexplicably loved him. What had never occurred to Bob was that surely there were reasons. For instance, Scrooge's feelings toward Christmas were not helped by the passing of his only friend on its eve seven years before. But in reality, 
His frustration with its agenda could be dated as far back as 51 Christmas Eves before, when a 14-year-old Ebby arrived home after hopping rails from his academy nearly 2,000 miles away. He squatted in cargo and eagerly anticipated the looks of surprise he would be welcomed with. When he arrived, his father griped about the cost it would be to send him back, and later drank too much rum, and knocked Fan to the floor. From then on, Christmas needed not impose itself on Ebenezer again. He saw it only as a means of people letting one another down. Fred also told of his mother's untouched pride in Ebenezer's early success as a businessman. His ethic was to be desired by anybody encumbered by a dream, Fred said in a soft, unimposing impersonation of his beloved mother. That came about at a time when the economic horizons were mighty different, Fred explained to Kate. I'm sure Bob could better explain how the shift has affected business all over, he continued as Bob smiled. And my Uncle Ebby was eager to take advantage of the opportunity available then. All you had to do was want it. And I asked my mom if she thought it was because he needed to impress my grandfather, but she said no, that he wanted to be all he could be, and that no one else's impression would matter to him. Although, that conviction can't be maintained by any young man who's met the right girl. Fred began to smile, knowing he'd arrived at a point in the story in which an unusual perspective of Scrooge could be taken. Bob leaned forward, as did the boys. The curiosity to learn of someone's courting days is a natural phenomenon that begins with early puberty and relents when one dies. The feeling of getting an insight on Scrooge's former romantic life for Bob would be comparable to that particular sensation you've had when you've spotted a schoolteacher in a grocery store and then also spotted their spouse. It's delightfully strange. Somehow swept up in the backstory, Bob hadn't pieced together that any story involving love in Scrooge's life could only end in sadness. She was a French girl named Belle, Fred went on. So if her name wasn't truthful, I can't imagine what else might have distracted him so. And he went on to describe her in a level of detail so thorough it seemed as if Fred had met her himself. He spoke of her creamy complexion and fine, flowery hair in a way that made it impossible not to fall in love with her from generations away. In looking over at his girlfriend, only Tim recognized the angel from Fred's tale as someone he knew and loved as well. It possibly never occurred to any of them how wonderful Kate's casting was as the spirit whose job it was to inspire such memories for Scrooge. Fred relayed his understandings of how Fezziwig had been bought out and Scrooge hired away by a moneylender named Jorkin, who shortly thereafter hired a young mathematics prodigy by the name of Jacob Marley to keep the books. Jorkin taught Scrooge and Marley to streamline their revenue and maximize profit by highlighting the financial constraints of each client and then taxing them on their options. As you might have deterred, Scrooge and Marley then became Scrooge and Marley and left Jorkin in search of their own gold. As their success grew, so did their power in all ways of life, and euphoria set in. Scrooge perched his mahogany desk at the top of the world, and from there, he asked for Belle's hand in marriage. She accepted his proposal and was briefly carried into a fairy tale world wherein true love is as easily maintained as a verbal contract. When 18 months later, Scrooge had still not made the time to assist in the planning of their wedding, Belle took on arranging it herself. But my uncle never misfiled a receipt, Fred said. And when he came across the carbon of a check made out to Bo Kay's flowery for $200, Abby snapped. Fred told the tale as if it was a legend, and no one could confirm if any of its characters were real. Of course, Scrooge certainly was real, and seemed truly so when Fred went on to explain how the flower confrontation led to Belle's decision to leave Scrooge. But he never admitted that it hurt him. He just went on counting coins. I can't believe I actually feel sorry for that guy, Arthur said. Well... No honest person is without any darkness, Fred insisted. Bob still said nothing, 
He had listened carefully to the end of Fred's story and was instantly saddled with more guilt this time over Emily. There he sat on a street unfamiliar to him in a van on Christmas Eve. It was after 11 and not only had revenge taken his holiday from him, it had taken it from his dear wife as well and that was unacceptable. Bob thought about how all this time she believed he was too busy with work to make it home. At least when Scrooge blamed work for his negligence, he was telling the truth. Bob had become the anti-hero of his own family's Christmas on the same year Arthur had made his own way from London. At the very least, he could call home. I'm going to step outside for a minute, Bob announced. He slid the van door open and leaned against it as he dialed nervously. Hello? He heard Emily say. Hi, sweetie, Bob said, a weak apology already in his tone. Bob, what on earth is going on? I don't even know where to start in answering that. Well, this is outrageous of that ridiculous man. She raised her voice in a reciprocal tone of sympathy. I know, I know, it's terrible, but I'll be home soon. Is it even legal, Bob? Can he really hold you all captive into the night? Because I hardly think it's your problem that there aren't more hours in the workday. There were some setbacks, Em. Bob tried to reason without lying too blatantly. I know, it breaks my heart too. If I were you, I would get 10 or 15 others and decide amongst yourselves how to go about speaking with the labor board about this, because it's needless and it's cruel, on Christmas Eve or any other night of the year. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe a report needs to be filed. Not tonight, Bob, she said sternly. Just finish up and come home. Take a cab, and we'll still have a little evening left. Okay, Bob said. When the call ended, Bob sucked in a lung full of cool air. He stood silently for another moment before climbing back into the van where Arthur and Tim both met him with claims that Emily had texted each of them, wondering where they were. As a matter of fact, the messages were identical. 11.08 p.m. Emily. Come home, please. Christmas is for family. Her firmness was entirely understandable. The please at the end of the sentence and not the front reflected Emily's stern face. Perhaps the previous Christmas, when Arthur had not been able to come home, had desensitized some of the Cratchits to the importance of togetherness at this time of year. In any case, if you find yourself not empathizing with the emotional torture that's been thrust onto Scrooge's psyche so far, you will surely agree that Emily is the truest victim in this story. Tell her you're on your way, Bob said to Arthur and Tim. We're going to do this fast. Bob saw Kate off at the foot of Scrooge's driveway. They tucked themselves behind a tall hedge which guarded the end of the curb like a gargoyle. You don't have to do this, he assured her to no acquiescence. Kate stood as straight as a pole with her knees together and clutching herself. She wore only the white dress she'd been told by her mother to save for Christmas Eve mass. Her arms were bare, and though it was a mild climate for that time of year, it was by no means appropriate weather for such little attire. Her earrings were large like hoops, but glitter-covered snowflakes instead. She blew into her hands to toast them, but otherwise exhibited no signs of discomfort. Not like Bob surely had appeared all evening thus far. Bob fished in his deep pocket for a Bic lighter and handed it to her. Now show me, he said, taking a step back. She wedged the lighter against her palm with her thumb and raised her hand to Bob so the lighter could not be seen behind it. She smiled, elegantly twitching her raised hand and covertly striking its flint with her palm. Bob could not see the lighter, but he could see its flame flicker upward, giving the illusion that Kate's finger could spark fire. Wonderful, he said. See, it's easy as can be. Easy for you to say, Houdini, she played. Just be sneaky about it. It serves two purposes, he told her. It'll help you sell your mystique, and it's going to frighten him. You want me to frighten him? 
That's essentially our entire objective, Bob said dryly. He won't have his glasses on. Keep a distance and pry him about everything Fred told you. His father, his apprenticeship, Bell. It'll spook him that you know anything at all, and all you have to do is spook him. Okay, Bob, Kate smiled again. Don't worry, I can handle it. I know you can, he said. They high-fived. As Kate scurried back through the bushes from whence they came earlier, Tim hollered a careless, Be careful! from the van, but neither residents nor mice stirred in the neighborhood. Hush! Bob said to his son. Excuse me, Dad, but it's not exactly a carton of eggs you just sent that girl in there for. Tim bickered back. Pardon me for being a bit concerned. Okay, I'm sorry, Bob said. Just keep your voice down. Tim was quiet for a short moment and then piped up again. I'm going to go in with her. Like hell you are, Bob said in a voice not much softer than Tim's had been. Stop me, Tim said. You can't even walk, Tim, Bob argued, quickly getting anxious. Then let me go, Arthur stepped in. Is that okay? We have to get back to your mother, Bob said sternly. And Kate doesn't, Tim said, amazed by his father's lack of compassion. Tim's right, Pop, Arthur said. She shouldn't be in there alone. Bob scowled, knowing this was true. Sure, he whispered. Okay, go ahead. Arthur trotted after Kate, and Bob climbed back into the van where the waiting commenced again. Nobody spoke until Tim asked Bob how long Kate had been gone. Only 18 minutes, he said, checking his watch. The silence among them resumed and maintained through the rest of the time spent waiting. Among other things, Bob thought about how much of the night had been spent in quiet reflection of his mistakes, and how none of that reflection could seem to push him back into his older state of conscience. He very distinctly felt shameful and still could not be stopped. As a means of attempting to revalidate his actions, Bob tried his best to think of a time when Scrooge had utterly humiliated him. He knew there were many such occurrences, and all of them culminated in the bubbling pot of his tolerance, which had only just boiled over. He thought back on his early days as a junior associate with Scrooge and Marley. Bob and a friend from school had been hired in the same batch of fresh blood and placed in cubicles next to one another. On the Friday afternoon of his first week, Bob took a moment to chat with his friend about a ball game, and to his chagrin, foolishly decided to seat himself on the desk. The next Monday morning, Bob entered his cubicle and found that Scrooge had removed his chair upon observing what he wouldn't be needing. Committed to owning his mistake, Bob worked the rest of the day from his knees and was laughed at by Jacob Marley no fewer than seven times. When Bob had tried to ask Marley for his chair to be restored, Marley said, No, no, I don't think so, darling. Now lighten up and get back to work. A moment nine years gone, Bob felt himself almost charmed by its memory. He quickly learned that his place of business would remain ever only that, and any resentment he harbored of that experience had in fact been from Marley. Until Marley's death two years later, Bob almost never saw or heard from Scrooge. As he shook off the nostalgia, it struck him that he never really knew the old man at all, at least not until Marley had been dead seven years, and Bob broke into Scrooge's house and stole his glasses. At 11.31, phase two was resolved. It concluded in a way very much different from the last, Arthur and Kate emerged together from the same hedge that had released them before when they dashed furiously from the Jacob Marley haunting. This time they sauntered, with no trace of panic, and Kate even hung her head slightly, now not clutching the scarce warmth against her body. As they appeared on Jess Pence Drive, Fred was the first to notice. They're back, he said, as his first words and all the time they had been gone. Tim shot up and quickly lurched open the van door. Are you okay? He asked Kate, who quietly slumped inside. Bob closed the door behind her, and Arthur walked around and reclaimed his seat behind the wheel. 
Kate, dear, Bob said carefully, is everything okay? How did it go? It went fine, Pop, Arthur said gently and matter-of-factly. She did an amazing job, and Scrooge bought the whole thing. Tim pulled himself toward his girlfriend and winced briefly as his unbandaged leg drug along the floor of the vehicle. By reflex, she grabbed him and coaxed the leg into a safe rest. Babe, was it kind of freaky? He asked as if no others were there. She swapped her look of trauma for query and thought for a moment. He begged me to leave him alone, she said finally. I mean, he pleaded. It was killing him. Let's get her home, Arthur, Bob said, and then the rest of us. Arthur nodded and turned forward, igniting the engine. Fred Hollywell's van left Jess Bent's drive in a fever, but its passengers in a cold sweat. Kate's color had returned by the time they reached the end of her driveway. She was still saying very little, but didn't otherwise seem terribly disturbed. Bob determined the poor girl was just badly in need of some normalcy and her own familiar Christmas Eve atmosphere. She kissed Tim's forehead as she exited the van and wished the men a Merry Christmas. Another five minutes up the road, they arrived at the Cratchit split. All but one dimly lit window were dark, and even that one flickered only meekly, illuminating nearly none of the neighborhood, which had gone black of even its Christmas lights. The moon cast a shadow of headstones that sprung from the cemetery ground on the hill. It's been thoroughly unusual, boys, Fred said, and I must admit, not without substantial thrill. You're a hero of mine, Bob said, strongly reaching to shake Fred's hand. I hope there aren't any hard feelings. To rob a soul of its Christmas Eve, well, that's unforgivable, Fred assured. But to give your own defense of Christmas itself, that's a job that needs doing. Bob was again appalled by Fred's eloquence. Where had that come from? And you'll run my boy on back, he asked. Fred put his hand on Arthur's shoulder. You got it. The men rose from their seats and stepped outside, brushing pine needles off their pants. Bob looked at his eldest son and found himself looking up more than he could remember having to do. Arthur had become a fine young man and wore his height with command of his space. You really sure you want to go back? Bob asked. Arthur laughed a bit, letting his breath escape into the air. As long as it's so trendy to pretend you're a ghost, yeah, I'd like a turn. The door of the van still open, Fred reached into his back seat and produced a frumpy wreath, woven from pine and not dissimilar to the one he'd left at the Cratchit doorstep the day before. He reached up and flopped it onto Arthur's head like a crown. Arthur's stringy red hair flowed from beneath the wreath like Christmas ribbon, and he smiled warmly, with the same look of confidence that Kate and Fred had both had before they haunted Scrooge. His fresh beard furrowed. Bring Scrooge to Fred's, Bob said. He reached into his pocket and handed Arthur a sizable handful of cash. Call a cab and tell the driver everywhere you'll need to go, and then not to acknowledge you again. Then tell Scrooge the driver can't see you. I'll rush right home so you can come to my place first, Fred said. Show him in the window, Bob added. Show him that Fred's alone. Then take him to our window to show him our family and how nice it is to be with family at Christmas. Arthur only nodded, logging the directions. He's an Olivier, Dad, Tim said, smacking Arthur on the shoulder. He's going to be just fine. Bob's concentration didn't break. This is a new angle on our plan, Arthur. We've made him feel regret. Now we must make him feel guilt. Pop, I've got this. Arthur cut him off and smiled. It's the role of a lifetime. The van drifted off again with Arthur and Fred in tow as Bob and Tim turned down the path toward their home. Bob held one crutch and let Tim hang on his shoulder as he hobbled along on his other side. Bob's key had barely nicked the lock when the front door flung open and Emily braced herself with her hand on either side of the doorway as if part of her wanted to hug them in relief and an angrier part forbid her. Her face was unreadable and, after some inspection, might have conveyed joy 
but then also rage, before perhaps exhibiting bewilderment as well. Though she seemed not to have noticed the red spotlight had been removed from their lawn, she even still projected a crimson complexion. Merry Christmas, Mum, Tim said softly to test the waters. Emily still said nothing but released her arms from the frame and tossed them over her men. For a second she held them as if it was all she'd wanted for Christmas, and then she jolted back into a frenzy. Have either of you heard from Arthur? Yes, Bob said, knowing exactly how to ease the worry. He called me to say he was on his way from Hanover, but the bus got a flat. He was waiting for the repair, but he wanted to call to say his phone was nearly dead, and that if he didn't answer, that's why. What an ungodly Christmas, Emily scorned. And you, she pointed at Tim. Your poor father's worked a 15-hour day, and you couldn't leave your girlfriend a little sooner to spend Christmas with your family? I'm sorry, Mom, he said, looking up at his father. Well, come out of the cold, she said, giving in. Your brother and sister are still up. They wanted to see you both before bed. Emily disappeared inside, and her husband and second son followed. As he kicked off his boots, Bob retrieved his cell phone, and looking up to ensure he wasn't being seen, he sent a quick note to Arthur. 11.49 p.m. Bob. Your mother thinks your phone is dead. Don't answer it. Mixed within his many guilty feelings, Bob felt an unhealthy warmth from knowing he'd been clever that night. He had done a marvelous job of rising to the occasion of his sudden deviousness, and though it was against the direction of his moral compass, he couldn't have wished for a more smooth execution thus far. He was also still attempting to understand how Fred Hollywell had managed to maintain his cool so well, which was entirely uncharacteristic. To rob a soul of Christmas Eve is unforgivable but to give your own in defense of Christmas itself is a job that needs doing. What remarkable wisdom had come from Fred and his assistants that night? Bob thought about that remark and wondered if he had understood it correctly the first time. He had taken it to mean that Scrooge was spoiling Christmas for everybody, and so it needed to be redeemed. But in truth, Scrooge had no more pilfered Fred's Christmas than Bob had by involving him in his outrageous con. Tim came down on his crutches and began to hobble into the living room. As he brushed past, Bob's days broke, and he looked up to see the source of his neighborhood's one twinkling light, their gorgeous Christmas tree. The boxes that stored the ornaments were neatly stacked beneath the coffee table, and it became apparent that Emily and the twins had decorated the tree that evening, and might have included the rest of them had they been around for the festivity. Its flaws were masked perfectly behind a uniform of holiday spirit, and its decorations were familial without being tacky, and elegant without being ostentatious. Among the decorations, he spotted his mother's French horn, Emily's angel, his own set of miniature nutcrackers, and a family favorite of Tim's, a carefully looked-after square of red construction paper he crafted as a four-year-old in Sunday school. It hung from a branch on fuzzy pipe cleaner and was inscribed in messy crayon with the phrase, God bless us, everyone. In fact, it said, God bless us, everyone, and celebrating his innocent naivete had long been a crucial part of the Cratchit family Christmas. During the many moments when hearts felt warm, Tim would cheekily spoil the sincerity by boasting, God bless us, everyone, with an emphasis on that tricky syllable. Without fail, the rest would break into laughter. Looking at the tree, Bob felt Christmas wash over him in a way he had forgotten it could. Though it seemed a shame that he'd wasted so much of it already, he could feel nothing but joy by the fact that he'd made it home. Bob, Emily called from the kitchen, come get a cookie. It occurred to Bob that he hadn't eaten in nearly 12 hours. He followed through the kitchen where his twins sat at the table in front of the same puzzle they had been working on the day before. Only now it was abundantly clear the picture was, in fact, of children skating. Tim stood over them, nibbling on a cookie, 
and was in the middle of pointing out a piece to them in suggestion. Hi, Pop, Simon shouted. Hi, Daddy, Belinda followed. Merry Christmas. Hey, kids, Merry Christmas. Emily appeared again, now without a trace of her irritation. She slunk alongside her husband with playful eyes and presented him with a plate of chocolate chip cookies sparkling from their gooey pits and a glass of scotch with eggnog in it. How about a trick? Bob said, without even really thinking. Yes, Belinda said, shooting up from her seat. Okay, everybody into the living room. Let's not waste that perfect tree. Stave 5 Imagine, if you will, as the child of your father or the spouse of your husband, how you would feel if a cherished family member had not made it home until nearly midnight on Christmas Eve. If you'll allow me to assume, I would wager that, whether or not you had reason to blame someone else, you would still be inclined to be quite cross with that family member. That Bob Cratchit's family spread around him, loving him, was nothing short of a miracle, especially considering how royally he'd infringed upon their Christmas Eve with his own doing. Of course, Emily, Simon, and Belinda had no idea of that, and only Tim knew that the fact that Arthur was not yet home was very much Bob's fault as well. He donned the bathrobe Emily had given him when they were first married. It had once been navy blue, but since had faded to a sickly gray. It was tattered and worn, and better fitted for a man twice his size, but was still as comfortable as ever, and draping from him in a way that was signature to the Cratchit family. When Bob would perform magic while wearing this robe, Simon would call him the wizard, and as such, Bob would always be forced to roll up his sleeves and prove that nothing was hidden within. He had done just that, assuming the home comforts a Christmas Eve is intended to offer, as he cracked his knuckles and announced, The magic word is Kringle. Ask, and you shall receive. It is important to note that between this trick and the one he'd performed the evening before, Bob Cratchit would not have wished for me to divulge his secrets, and it behooves me to honor that wish. You may find it curious, of all Bob's many secrets documented here, which would far from exonerate him in this account, that I would choose to respect this of Bob's inclinations. If so, my answer for you is this. The events of one particular evening have been chronicled to exhaustion, that is, from the perspective of one man. This document outlines some of the same events, and some others, from the perspective of a different man who can be identified beyond the shadow of a doubt as one who loves his family. If, when this litigation is completed, we can better assess the instances that have occurred while keeping intact the harmless secrecy of a family's bond, I will have considered this an unvulgar success. Emily, dim the lights, dear, Bob asked of his wife. The overhead lamp went off, and Bob and his family remained only lit by the soft glow of their tree. He sat higher than his children and cast a shadow onto the wall, similar to, though much smaller than the one which had been imprinted on Scrooge's wall earlier that evening. Bob retrieved a deck of cards from the coffee table, slipped them out of their box, and began to shuffle them comfortably, all the while glaring at his children with a playful stare. This amused the twins especially. After a moment of shuffling, he reached the deck out toward them and fanned it face down. Each of you take a card. Don't show me what it is, Bob said. Belinda reached out for the first card and belabored a moment on which she should select. Simon took the next and then Tim. They stared up at their father, clutching their cards against themselves in secret. Bob put the remaining cards back down, picked up his Bic lighter, and held it in a way he'd earlier taught Kate how to hold it, so the flint was hidden behind his palm. Simon, you know the magic word. Kringle, Simon declared. Then ask and you shall receive, Bob ordered, pointing at Simon's covered card. Simon hesitated a moment and then shouted, Three of clubs! Bob instantly swung his arm back, knocking the wall and flicking the lighter so the flame appeared just as it came in contact. Kringle, he yelled, 
releasing his thumb from the flint. And as the flame vanished, three shadowy figures in the shape of clubs, each about half a foot wide, appeared on the white wall and began to fade away instantly. In the time it would have taken to blink, the shapes were gone. Whoa, Simon said, awestruck. What? asked Belinda. You didn't see that? her father asked. See what? Belinda said. No. Me neither, added Tim. You're next, Belinda, Bob said. Ask and you shall receive. Six of hearts, Belinda said. Kringle! Again, Bob's arm whipped back and his knuckle hit the wall as the flame appeared for a brief second. Belinda watched as six shadows resembling hearts faded back into the wall as quickly as they had appeared there. Oh my God, she yelped. You see, Bob asked. That's the ghost of the deck. Simon began laughing in amazement. Okay, Tim said, getting a second look at his card. My turn. You bet, Gimpy, Bob mocked. Tim glared at his father and whispered, Queen of Diamonds. Kringle, his father hollered, knocking his hand into the wall once again and flicking the lighter as four club-shaped shadows appeared on the wall and immediately began to fade. What happened? Simon said, confused. That one was wrong. It was? Bob asked, theatrically looking at the wall. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Queen of Diamonds, Tim? Tim's cheeky grin became a full smile as he flipped his card to reveal the Four of Clubs. You lied, Simon shouted. The magic knows, Gimpy, Bob said to Tim. You can't fool the magic. Emily flicked on the light. It's late, guys. I'm sure Arthur will be home soon. But in the meantime, I think it would do us all some good to get to sleep so Christmas can finally get here. That's not such a bad idea. Bob agreed. The mention of Arthur came at a stunning time for him as he spotted, in the way of the moonlight, a crown of pine duck out of view from outside his living room window. He was quick to avert his eyes and became eager to maintain the attention of his family. Though he had not completely forgotten his scheme, he had put it in the back of his mind and had not checked to see if any messages had come from Arthur about bringing Scrooge by the house. Tim was beginning to stand and bracing himself against the coffee table. When he had risen, He grabbed one of the crutches, hobbled towards Bob's chair, and quickly scanned behind it in search of clues as to how Bob's trick had been done. Before the evening ends, my dears, Bob began to say, in hopes of keeping eyes from his windows, I want to take a moment to give thanks for a few things. Emily sat on the arm of the sofa, and the twins stood next to Tim, all befuddled by the unusual offer Bob had made. First, that I have a family who would put Christmas Eve on hold for me is a tremendous gift. He was vamping. He couldn't even be sure Arthur and Scrooge were outside the house, far less that they could hear him from inside. Second, I think it would be in the vein of Christmas spirit to give thanks for another person in our lives. A man who, though often secluded, has provided me with a job for nearly a decade and allowed for our family to share in the dwelling of this beautiful home. Emily furrowed her brow. You don't mean Scrooge. I do, in fact, Bob insisted. Old Ebenezer has had as many hardships as any of us in this life. By God, you can tell that by meeting the man. And perhaps he occasionally wears the scars of those hardships in a callous way. It's not for us to condemn this behavior, but to sympathize with it and pray that each new year brings a strengthened effort to cure it. As the words flowed from him, Bob began to feel the same sense of pride in himself which he'd felt for Fred for his eloquence. As he pontificated, he momentarily believed his own sermon. So I say God bless, Mr. Scrooge. God bless us, every one, Tim shouted as the rest burst into laughter. Bob smiled also at the well-timed declaration. The children took turns kissing their father, wishing him a Merry Christmas, and filing off to bed behind Emily, who had rolled her eyes and left in the middle of Bob's blessing. 
Tim limped out last, winking at his father. Go to bed, kid, Bob whispered. It'll all be over in the morning. The room was left hollow, and though he had been left alone, Bob felt suddenly more overwhelmed than he had yet been since returning home. He felt the clarity of his doings ringing between his ears and stood for a moment, wondering how he could put that Christmas Eve to rest as quickly as possible. He leaned down and pulled a cord from the wall darkening the tree and caught a glimpse on his ascension of the black television reflecting the faces of his son Arthur and a fragile Ebenezer Scrooge staring in at him from the yard. Bob finished rising and slowly paid the reflection no mind. He collected the plate of cookie crumbs and his scotch glass glazed with an eggnog membrane and left the dark room. When Bob reached the kitchen, his hand had nervously shaken all the cookie crumbs onto the floor. He dumped the dishes in the sink and reached for his cell phone. 11.52 p.m. Arthur. Okay, thanks. 12.24 a.m. Fred. Positive I just saw someone looking in my window. Either the plan is working, or I'm about to be murdered. 12.31 a.m. Arthur. Just left Fred's, bringing Scrooge to the house. Bob reminded himself how crucial it would be that he and the others erase their message history the next day. He slid his phone into the pocket of his robe and continued back down the hall toward the doormat where he'd kicked off his boots. As he bent down to tie the laces, he felt a vibration from his pocket. 12.48 a.m. Arthur. Mayday. 12.48 a.m. Arthur. Lost him. Bob dropped the phone to the floor and quickly recovered, checking the time and seeing that it was 12.48. Still bent over, he peered out the doorside window and spotted Arthur swiftly trotting towards him. The door creaked open, and Arthur stepped inside, the wreath still on his head. What's happening? Bob asked, in a panic. He won't get back in the car, Arthur said, catching his breath. He ran up to the hill. You didn't chase him? Bob yell whispered. What was I supposed to say, Pop? Arthur did the same. He had asked me what was wrong with Tim. I told him it was MS and that you and Mom couldn't afford treatment. It's a shattered knee. Why on earth would you have said MS? Well, we're lying about everything else. I figured I'd sweeten the story, Arthur said, frustrated. So I kind of implied things weren't looking good for Tim. He begged me not to say anything else, and then he ran up the street towards the cemetery. Good God, Arthur, Bob fretted. I'm sorry, Pop, but we can't leave him out there. He's got to get home, so there's at least some chance this all wasn't a ridiculous dream. Bob calmed himself and sighed. Would that it was, he whispered. He looked out the window again and saw no trace of the elderly broker. The fog was ripening and the darkest hour of the eve was taking its turn, as Bob knew he must do the same. You're right. He turned back to his son. You've done a marvelous job tonight. I've got to finish what I started. You going to be okay? Arthur asked. Pretty sure your old man's a snide, Bob smiled, but he'll be damned if he's not a good one. Arthur smiled and hugged his father, shedding pine needles onto both of them and onto the floor where there still sat some piles of more from when they brought the tree in. Merry Christmas, Pop he said, laughing a little. Merry Christmas, son, Bob replied. You can't go back in time. You can always come home. Is that Arthur? rang Emily's voice from atop the stairs. Yeah, Arthur said. Hi, Mom. I'm sorry. Okay, honey, go to bed. And she disappeared again. Bob had not yet taken the moment needed to note it was after midnight and therefore Christmas Day. Its first moment had arrived amid his brief visit with his darling family, and he had since been forced to get back to work to get back Jojo, if Jojo were a codename for Bob's sense of normalcy. It was, by a great substantiation, the coldest it had yet been that Christmas season. Bob's body drifted through the haze, guided by his chin, 
as it led him on a weary path toward the cemetery. He felt his pockets for the shapes of items he'd collected and utilized throughout the night and counted their inventory. But he counted no Scrooge on the hill. The irony of being unable to count a counter was completely lost on Bob, but its inconvenience was not. He scanned the range with his full set of senses and fretted about how, on God's murky earth, he would approach communicating with Scrooge if he ever did find him. His fellow cons had so magnificently embraced the opportunity to haunt the old man, and Bob was not confident in his ability to do the same. After all, Fred was a gifted impressionist, Arthur a trained actor, and Kate a perfect stranger. Bob was but a man in Scrooge's life, and even without his glasses, he would surely recognize his employee. The street that led to the hill where Bob's mother and Scrooge's sister were buried was winding in a way that seemed unplanned. Like my own city of Halifax, his neighborhood was transplanted there, however ill-fitting, and it was caused for the street's many cracks and the inability of the landscape to spawn trees aside from the dead ones on the hill. Bob watched his slow breaths emit smoke rings into the air, which then mixed with nature's mystic. He drifted nearer, the drape of his robe dragging in the moistened pavement and loose gravel. He continued analyzing the horizon for a moment and finally stopped when his vision caught a wisp of white hair flowing in the direction of the branches. The old man was broken, looking only at the backs of his eyelids and the imagination that danced there. Imagination which couldn't possibly have been more frightening than the very real things he'd seen that night. He knelt before a headstone, the mud on his bedware, and very distinctly seemed to Bob to not so much be praying for his life, but for the evening's events to have only been lucid dreams. Without any capacity left for hesitation, Bob held his pause no longer, and instead increased his purposed pace. As he approached the trough of the hill, he bowed his head and flung the neck of his robe over it. It felt heavy, but was more immobilizing by its sleeves, which then extended eight to ten inches past his fingers. Always oversized, its tail just barely reached the ground, and Bob, his face and body, were lost completely within it. He slowed his walk to a steady glide and began to climb the hill toward Scrooge. As the back of the old man's head became a closer target, Bob reasoned within that he had no option for phony voices. He resigned to the decision of only communicating mutely, and in fact, felt oddly comforted by that idea. He bore no form in the shroud of his robe, other than a hunch which differed from his regular posture. Though we know of the virtues in his character, to call such a phantom Bob feels positively unsuitable. And though Scrooge is not the person with which we share sympathies in this version of Mr. Dickens' story, it feels rather unfair to not note that Ebenezer was perfectly reasonable to have been petrified by its appearance. At the end of a night that promised the arrival of one such gravely apparition, utter fear was quite a natural state. In the disturbance of crunching leaves no more than six feet behind him, Scrooge turned to behold the phantom, and by its sinister look, was knocked to his seat. He gazed upward for a moment, straining his eyes against the fog of the atmosphere and the fog of his impaired vision. By process of patterns, am I to understand that you are a ghost whose duty is to observe Christmases that have yet to come? He asked finally. Christmas future? Bob's heart raced from within the costume of death. After a long stare, he chose to lower his head once and slowly so as not to disrupt the placement of his head cover. Your colleagues have shown me resentment, regret, and guilt, Scrooge said. If your shadows are of days that we have not yet lived, then are you to warn me of what my future risks? Bob was yet again impressed by the ease with which these people around him could form such elegant speak. Unable to do the same in a way that would pose such a threat, he maintained his silence and gave another single nod. Scrooge's face was gaunt and accepting, observing him as a lump in the dirt 
Bob noticed the old man clutching the pockets of his bedclothes. Sincerely curious, he reached out his arm, hand still buried in the sleeve, and silently requested the contents of Scrooge's pocket. The spindly fingers drew from the pocket and revealed a clamp of hard cash. Bob wondered if gripping the money brought Scrooge some kind of perverse comfort. Slowly, Ebenezer's hand met the sleeve of the robe and dropped the cash into the darkness. Bob felt the crude on his skin and filed through its stack in the only way he knew how. Gently revealing his hand to Scrooge, he fanned the bills into a perfect circle, resembling a green Christmas bulb, and held them upright like a deck of cards. Scrooge watched as the highest point of the circle began to mystically raise a single bill, as if something otherworldly was drawing it. The bill finished its rise by releasing from the fan and slipping into the air, before being swept away. Scrooge watched, as if money cutting the air was a blade cutting his flesh. Bob continued to hold the fan steadily, and worked his trick to continue doling out bill after bill into the atmosphere, until the entire stack of cash had been lost to nature. Scrooge scrambled for none of it, and Bob simply withdrew his arm. Your task is to frighten me, and indeed you know the way, Scrooge whispered, still sitting on the ground. But I assure you, spirit, the things I've been told of tonight have made a changing impact on me. I've been heartless, it's true. So what can you tell me of my future that I so greatly need to know? It brought Bob some relief that Scrooge, though fearful, was not without words. This was his first encounter with the old man since Jacob Marley's haunting, and it was being made very obvious that, in his absence, Kate and Arthur had done an exquisite job of showing Scrooge the error of his ways. Still, Non-polar questions could not be answered in his hush. Spirit, will you really not speak to me? Scrooge begged. He reached for the ledge of a tomb he'd been knelt in front of and used it to hoist himself up. In watching him from behind the mask of his hood, Bob noticed the headstone was engraved with the name Scrooge. Though he'd spotted the gravesite of Fred's mother before, his fixation on Ebenezer had kept him from making any other observations of his surroundings. Show me then, Scrooge said. Show me, if you must, the life I'm to avoid. In this moment, Bob Cratchit noticed for the first time that he, in fact, was considerably taller than Scrooge. In the nine years he'd known him, he had cowered in his presence, causing him to bow his shoulders, whereas Scrooge typically strode with confidence, pinning his shoulders high. The once-dominant brute stood before the ghost of Christmas yet to come, as they say, in shambles. His spindly fingers clutched together against his chest as his body quaked in the cool air. Bob, who had once been a man never to be at ease in a cemetery at night, was the one of the two holding the ground with conviction. His slow motions, he believed, were tormenting and posed the illusion that his tellings would forecast horror. Carefully reaching into the pocket of his robe, Bob clasped the Bic lighter and held it in his magician's way. So only his hand could be seen from outside the robe, he then reached his arm out and pointed it in the direction of his home on the street below. With a jerk motion, he struck the flint, causing a flicker to appear from what looked to be the end of his fingers. Scrooge was startled. What is it, spirit? He asked. Please speak to me. He mustered the courage to approach the phantom, which Bob allowed, and stood next to him facing the neighborhood. Bob Cratchit's home. I've been there already tonight. If only I'd known what a wonderful home it was. And if only I'd appreciated the kind man I've always known that he is. Realizing how close he was... Bob took a peaceful step back from Scrooge and slowly moved his pointing arm in the direction of a nearby headstone. The flicker of the ghost's fingers aimed directly at a modest grave about ten feet down the hill from Scrooge's sisters. The feeble old man took a moment to look up at his specter and then followed the direction, quickly pacing toward the stone. 
Bob watched as Scrooge pressed his hands against it and knelt to get a closer look. Bob watched him strain for a moment and then began to follow him down the hill. I haven't my glasses, spirit, Scrooge said, looking up. Though this evening's lessons have been mighty clear, I must admit my vision hasn't been. Bob slid his hand back into the pocket of his cloak, dumping the lighter and retrieving another important item. In a steady rhythm of daunting steps, he approached his employer and reached out his hand. Scrooge reached out to meet him and was handed the specs Bob had stolen from Scrooge's bedside table several hours before. Truly incredible, Scrooge whispered as much to himself as to the spirit. Bob knew in the returning of the glasses, he'd moved into yet another new phase of his scheme. It had been perhaps his most efficient device that Scrooge had been unable to see things clearly all night long. It would be a greater challenge than any other to continue to evade Scrooge's suspicion. The sunken eyes of a long-blinded miser widened as they adjusted to their lens. To Bob's relief, Scrooge did not first look at him, but instead directly at the headstone he had pointed out. It was small, but tidy and well looked after. Laid against it were flowers picked by children, and engraved on its granite was the name Cratchit. Upon seeing it, as if lightning had been struck in his heart, Scrooge was taken aback. Spirit, he stammered. Spirit, is this the grave of poor Bob Cratchit? The ghost made no movements. But he's still a young man, so, unless for an accident, I see no reason he would be gone before me. I've heard nothing of any illness. The realization cut him off and flushed his face to an even paler shade of white. Unless, he began softly. No, not Cratchit's boy, not Tim. Scrooge's words grew in volume and by the end felt to Bob like orders. He could see this was moving Ebenezer. Arthur's ad-lib had been genius. The old man slipped into a panic, still not looking directly at the spirit, perhaps for fear of how demonic he might have been clear in the moonlight. He began to pace as if alone and brushed past Bob's robe on the way back to where he had first been. He slunk to his knees again, instantly reaching around to cushion his delicate back. With a hang of his head, he attached a firm grip to either side of the headstone which read Scrooge and began to shake, for there was nothing left of the barrier which once kept emotion away from its namesake. He wept for the realities he believed to be so, and Bob stood ever silent, watching from beneath the brim of his hood. Fearful spirit, Scrooge eventually said without turning to show his tears. It was told to me you would be my final visitor. His words trembled. And if this is to be the last of my lessons, how am I to prove things will be different? How do I go about ensuring that poor boy's fate is as changed as I am? Bob wondered why Scrooge insisted on asking him questions upon having established that there would be no responses. Indeed, it is curious, though presumably Scrooge was learning from even his own words. The last thing Bob's employer said to him on the night that followed seven years after the death of Jacob Marley was but a decrepit plea. Spirit, must this all be on me? His words exhausted from his lips, rupturing his internal cruelty, collapsing his inhibitions, and marking the final selfish thing Ebenezer Scrooge would ever say to Bob Cratchit. The faulty phantom watched the ghost of Scrooge's old ways drift past the headstone and sink into the earth. All that remained of him was a body and an opportunity and Bob didn't fail to note the irony of witnessing such a rebirth from within a cemetery. Knowing he too was then posed with an opportunity, Bob took his final glance at Scrooge, who still knelt with his eyes closed, and slowly began to retreat. 
His steps back were cautious and gentle against the ground, though Bob somehow knew it would be a while before Scrooge looked up to see the spirit again. However long it had been, Ebenezer Scrooge did not see the spirit again. Bob Cratchit had made it down to the bottom of the hill and disrobed behind a shrub. He then bunched it under his arm and cut through the nearest yard, heading for the next street over. From there, he entered his own street from a direction opposite the cemetery and dared not to look up to see if Scrooge could still be seen whimpering. He crept along the front wall of the house and ducked into the dark of their unlit porch. He turned the knob with a force which consumed all his remaining patience, and though he had very little, he was plumb out of new ideas, and to wake Emily after such a disturbingly secretive night would be disastrous. The door didn't creak, the boots didn't plunk, and the breaths didn't happen until Bob reached his living room, where a black noble fur towered over him, as it would have if it were still in the forest. He tossed the bundled robe onto the corner of his sofa, and himself onto its center, where he removed his shirt and belt, and abruptly rocked his body to the side, falling stonily unconscious before his head landed. With that said, Bob certainly did not sleep comfortably on that sofa. His mind was claiming overtime and refused to wake him from five hours of horrifying and confusing dreams about Arthur going to jail, and Emily leaving him, and Tim falling gravely ill. By the sixth hour of Christmas Day, Bob had found Rem sleep. No more than an hour later, he awoke to Emily propping herself on the ledge of the cushions and handing him a glass of water and an aspirin. Well, morning, stranger, she said with a hint of sympathy. Missed you last night. Sweetheart, I'm so terribly sorry. Bob choked awake and lurched to sit up. I'll find new work sooner than I'll spend another Christmas Eve away from you and the kids. I meant I missed you in our bed, goof, but sure, I'll accept that as well. Emily spoke in the morning voice Bob only ever heard on weekends. For nine years, he'd left for the bus before his wife was awake and looked forward all week to her decidedly gentle Saturday morning tone. On Christmas, it was specialized with cinnamon. There's coffee here, she said. You've got to get a move on. St. Nick shouldn't have hangovers. Though still mildly sore, Bob's first gulp of coffee awoke him greatly. He wasted no more time lounging and quickly assisted Emily in arranging gifts beneath the tree. He was elated to take part in an honest-to-goodness feature of his family's Christmas tradition. The opportunity to bring his children the magic and the spirit was everything. He only stalled to peer out at his darling horizon and delight in the notice of the year's first few falling snowflakes. Stave 6 With only a handful of decades to spend on this earth, none of us is particularly entitled to think his observations are wholly true. After all, how can one assume he is correct about anything when he will only ever live to see a fraction of a substantial portion of mankind stay here? So while it is not my place to discuss the settings of Christmas past, present, or yet to come upon lands which I have never slept, I too would be vain to assume I have any sort of authority on the rest of the Christmases as well. The only Christmases I know inside and out are the 24 that I've had the fortune of celebrating, and those with whom I've celebrated have their own intimate relationships with those Christmases as well. We can only speak for ourselves, and as such, I do not pretend to behold any wisdom about the Christmases you have had such a peculiar relationship with, only my own. But what I can say for certain is this. Spirits do not exist, but spirit does. And cheer is intangible, but cheers are not. Magic is make-believe, but it happens anyway. And love is immeasurable, and it's better that way. Christmas is a particularly vulnerable time for many people, Emotions are running high, and one will find him or herself especially susceptible to bouts of sadness, anger, 
frustration, loneliness, and many other discouraging feelings. The reason for this is no more complicated than that Christmas is tied with bows of love, and there is nothing in the history of our world which has ever been more crippling than the spirit, cheer, and magic of love. It owns us, and it's unhealthy, and it enables us to do great things, things which require a tremendous amount of power. It forces us to do things we know are unwise, for which there have never been a clear metaphor for our dark sides. And make no mistake, love does have dark sides. They exist in all of us, and the more you love, the darker they become. The level of love Bob Cratchit felt for his family, like all love, was boundless. Without a calculable regulator maintaining his love, he was utterly powerless against its will to see him commit truly sinful crimes one Christmas Eve. Sinful certainly by the code of law, but also by the code of man, which dictates one will not seek revenge against another, and one will not make a fool of another. But since his victim had done the same to him time and time again, Bob was able to justify his doings, at least for the time it took to see them through. And he was fueled by the love he had for his family and his desperate want for that love never to be disrespected or belittled by Scrooge again. Indeed, as you've ascertained by other works, they were not. Bob knocked lightly on Tim's bedroom door. A beam of light entered with him, waking Tim and also Arthur, who lay there on a futon. They both stirred with groans similar to the one Bob had let out earlier. He slipped inside and closed the bedroom door. Merry Christmas, boys, he said with a smile. Merry Christmas, Dad, Tim grunted. So you made it back, Arthur joked. Nobody got arrested, that's a good sign. Arrested for what? Bob asked, striking sheer confusion. For, Arthur rubbed his eyes and exhaled loudly. You know what I mean. No idea, kid, Bob grinned. Sounds like a hell of a strange dream, though. Arthur paused for a moment and began to smile, his eyes still mostly shut. He began to sit up, red hair sticking in every which direction. Tim had already fallen instantly right back to sleep. Get your brother up, Bob said. I'm doing up some waffles. In spite of the many irregularities of their previous evening, the Cratchit Christmas morning began by the book, in keeping with their many traditions. Stockings first, then turns taken on bigger gifts, followed by Bob's waffles with bacon, and phone calls to Emily's brothers so the children could thank them and wish them a Merry Christmas. Five of six Cratchits sat about their cozy living room against the glow of their perfect tree, and nestled in the warmth of their care for one another. Even with his lack of peaceful sleep, Bob could not have felt more relaxed then, and would have gone on feeling that way if not for a ring on his cell phone in the kitchen and a holler from Emily in the same place. Bob, it's Fred Hollywell. I'm going to answer it. Bob shot upward, dribbling coffee onto his robe and darted down the hallway. No, Emily, I can get it. Merry Christmas. Hello, Fred, he heard her say, and burst into the kitchen. Yes, he's right here, Emily said. But I wanted to thank you for the lovely wreath you dropped. She appeared to have been cut off. Yes, well, it was very sweet. And then again. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you're in a hurry, I'll hand it over. Merry Christmas, Fred. Emily placed her palm over the phone and whispered to Bob. He's all wound up about something. Didn't seem to want to talk to me. Bob mustered a phony giggle and took the phone from her. Fred? Bob? Can anybody else hear me? No, Bob stalled, passing by Emily and stepping out onto the back deck. He could see his breath instantly and felt a thin layer of snow crunch under his slippers. What's happening? Is everything okay? I think so, man, but I don't know. It seems weird to me, Fred said with a hyper and undetectable tone. What do you mean? 
well, my uncle was just here, and he was really strange. Didn't stay long, just said he was going to go visit you next. So I had to warn you, he's coming. Fred then added, he might know, Bob. I've never seen him be like that before. Scrooge is coming here? Bob did his best to stifle a yell. When? Now? Absolutely now. He just left. He's going to be at your place in no time. What do you mean about him being strange? Bob asked. What kind of strange? I can't explain it, Fred insisted. You'll have to wait and see for yourself. It was baffling. Bob rolled his eyes and let out a long breath of worry. He was certain his constitution had no room left for such dread. Surely he was a candy cane's length away from a heart attack. Okay, he said finally. I'll talk to you later. He's going to be here any minute. Okay, Bob. Good luck. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Bob snarked. I guess we'll see about that. He hung up the phone and approached his back door. The sound of it opening was matched by the opening of another door on the opposite side of his house. He stepped quietly into his kitchen and listened as Emily spoke from the hallway. Well, Mr. Scrooge, she said nervously. What a fine Christmas surprise. Bob's heart sunk with the melting globs of snow on his slippers. His mind took him from the night before and the moment when he left the office. He followed through a momentary vision of his entire set of steps that followed, chasing the cart of the townhouse, breaking into the cellar, clanging chains against his wooden stairs, running away, sending Kate back in, then Arthur, coming home, heading out again to perform the final haunting himself. Bob knew his scheme had not been perfectly tight. It was haphazardly thrown together and afforded him a disgusting amount of luck. Scrooge could have come by to confront him about any one of a hundred different missteps he had made the night before. In the daylight, the old man would have his wits about him and would not be shied from facing him while the other Cratchits stood by. At the very least, Bob knew he couldn't hide any longer. At the last second, before following Emily's voice down the hall, he removed his robe and stuffed it beneath the table. In bedwear no more dignified than Scrooge's had been, he marched toward his deserved fate. Ah, grunted Scrooge as he laid his eyes on Bob. That is who I'm here to see. Bob was unsure whether Scrooge was talking to himself or to Emily, who stood nervously next to him. He had slowed in the hallway and stared down at Scrooge. The living founder of SMB wore a brown trench open to a yellow waistcoat. He clutched a newsboy's cap, which appeared odd to Bob, as he'd not known Scrooge as to be the kind to entertain common courtesies such as removing one's hat in his fellow man's dwelling. Attire only accounted for some of the factors which went into his appearance differing greatly from the night before. Scrooge stood tall and wore his head with the pride he so famously recognized himself with, and propped on his nose, as if born unto it, were his wiry glasses, clear from a fresh polishing. Good morning, Mr. Scrooge, Bob said, careful not to mention Christmas as if he weren't in his own home. Scrooge began to move past Emily and met Bob in the center of the hallway. I spoke with Richard Dooley this morning, Cratchit. He called from Cancun because he hadn't received any notification of his file having been completed. Bob furrowed his brow and cocked a confused lip. He didn't respond at first, but stared beyond Scrooge with squinting eyes. Has this man acquired the nerve to bring business to his employee's home on Christmas morning? Momentarily choosing not to pay mind to the certain hot water he was probably in, Bob decided then that Scrooge would not bully him in front of his family. I don't know why that would be, Mr. Scrooge, he said eventually, but it will have to wait until a business day. I'm with my family now. Emily's smile was faint in the background of a now very close-up Ebenezer, who faced Bob at matched eye level. 
For the moment that followed, it was a duel of cold glares. No, Bob, I'm afraid that won't do, Scrooge said, looking down and handling his cap. For one, we won't be doing business with Dooley any longer. He tends to expect too much. Furthermore, I imagine you'll have more important things to take care of when you return to the firm. Bob watched on, the fear slowly filling his veins again. Listening to the pace of Scrooge's words and following his strangely peaceful motions made it impossible to get hung up on little things like the fact that he'd just been called Bob. Take the weak, Cratchit, Scrooge added, looking back up to his face. When you're back, we'll have you fitted in Jacob's old office. With still not a full grin on Scrooge's face, Bob was reluctant to react at all. Sir, he said. I'm getting on in my years, Bob, the old man began. It would be bad business to carry on any further without beginning to vet a suitable heir to our brokerage house. His words began to slow as his proper smile emerged, and he added, And it would be an honor to have you partner with me. The blotchy whirlwind of lost thought overtook Bob again and he blacked out entirely that Emily smacked her hand against her mouth and that Scrooge extended his for a shake. Is this a joke? Bob managed to say, still hoarding his right hand. Bob! Emily scolded. No, no, that's actually a perfectly fair question, Scrooge said, turning to Emily. Though I've never been particularly good with jokes, I suppose this would seem quite out of character as well. He turned back to Bob. I've made grave errors in my life, Mr. Cratchit. Some of them are the very same which have supplied me with a vulgar amount of things and filthy money, but where I've faltered is in the effort to make any of them mean anything. Where I've failed is in making friends. He withdrew his still unshaken hand as Bob continued to stare in shock. And now, though I'm not deserving of your friendship, Bob, I choose to use the time I've left to chase after it anyway. Scrooge's voice became gruff to avoid sounding insincere. Because in you... I see a man who works indefatigably hard to earn the things he wants, and that's a trait I identify with and admire. But the difference between us is that what you work hard to earn is all of this. He lifted his hands and began pointing all around. This home, the love of your beautiful family, this honorable life you've built, which has all a man could desire. Still operating from the time zone of a previous Scrooge, Bob realized the missed handshake and abruptly forced his hand forward, which Scrooge met proudly. Thank you, Mr. Scrooge, Bob mustered. Thank you most kindly. You are a thoroughly decent man, Bob. With an option open for friendship someday, upon my tireless apologies, will you accept a role as my partner? You mean at Scrooge and Marley, right? Bob asked, still baffled. No, at Scrooge, Marley, and Cratchit, Scrooge corrected. Bob's smile finally plowed through, and he began to laugh uncontrollably through saying, Yes, yes, of course, thank you, sir. Well, Emily, dear, Scrooge said, turning, that's all the business I wish to do on a Christmas day. Thank you, Mr. Scrooge, Emily said warmly. But if you'll oblige, I would love to invite your entire family for Christmas dinner with my nephew and I. Oh, my, Emily said. There are six of us. I fear that would be quite the imposition. Certainly not. Scrooge said. The more the merrier. And I can assure you I can accommodate any of the needs your boy who's unwell may have. Emily's face fell to confusion. Sorry. Who? Though I once spoke the word litigation, the purposes of our story need not include any further details than that Bob Cratchit and Ebenezer Scrooge, whether right or wrong, 
were forevermore transformed men. In Christmases that passed, Bob spent every one of them with the people he loved the most in the world. Though he went on knowing that his actions on the seventh anniversary of Jacob Marley's death were ill-advised, irresponsible, and deceitful, he was able to find peace in time with the fact that life was made easier for everyone overall. Christmas, though unchangeably saddled with wicked pressures, is fundamentally meant for love. And though it changes every year, bends and rearranges, the one consistency of Christmas is that we all want from it the very same things. The surprising moments, the opportunities to give, the James Taylor songs, the quiet nights in front of reruns, the magic tricks, and the inexplicable want to believe in a spirit that has as much realness as you and me, the Christmas spirit, with which I now offer you a sentiment as sincere as is humanly possible, in the well-humored, nostalgic, and loving words of Tim Cratchit, God bless us, every one. The End I truly hope you've enjoyed the tale of Humbug, Charles Dickens' classic ghost story of Christmas seen through different eyes. I'm sorry I didn't really do the voices. Let's just pretend each character had a voice very similar to mine, with varying degrees of enthusiasm and pretentiousness. I wrote Humbug in the 2014 Christmas season and recited it over four sessions in my bathroom this fall. I also edited it and developed the production elements before gifting it to you through ColinSweets.com. Ross Arsenault designed the cover art. Thanks, bro. Music for the production was taken from YouTube channels called Stephen Wiseman and Cherish Tuttle Vocal Studio and from the 2006 album James Taylor at Christmas. Special thanks to the April 20th, 2015 episode of Jeopardy. My name's Colin Sweets. Humbug is my first novella, and with it, I wish you and your loved ones a safe and magical holiday season. Thank you so much.